Welcome, everybody, to Books with Cooks, a podcast for bookies and foodies. Hi, I'm Jess. And I'm Alex. And we're two cousins who are also best friends who love to read. Yeah. And I love to cook. And I cook to survive. We'll be reviewing, analyzing, sometimes overanalyzing, and discussing the books we're currently reading, as well as new and old recipes from our kitchen to yours. By the way, we're real people with real families. So you may hear cats, dogs, birds, babies, and husbands. So enjoy that bonus material. Now let's get booking and have a tasty chat. Listeners, stick around after this episode for some bonus content. Hi, everybody. It's snack time. Welcome back to the snack. <laughs> Alex, what you snacking on today? So I am eating my dinner. I made flatbread pizzas like we discussed uh, in our last episode. So nice. yeah, they're really quick and easy. And I'd gotten the dough recently for our other episode. So <laughs> I, uh, I, made, I made some tonight and they're pretty good. That's funny because I actually bought naan, not nan, yep. naan today. It is the and, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's the garlic one too. And um, I'm excited. I'm going to, I was thinking about making a flatbread tomorrow or something. Nice. Yeah. I'm also drinking coffee and my dad got me the amaretto uh, Tarani syrup to put into it because I really like the amaretta and the chocolate Milano. So he got me one of each and nice. it's amazing. Yeah. Really good. Cool. Way to go. I'm going. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, it's funny because <laughs> this morning I actually had amaretto in my coffee. So that's funny. Oh, nice. Yeah. I love We're the both. amaretto one. Yeah. I know. It tastes so good. Yeah. I like all the nutty flavors. Don't say a word. It's because oh, you're the, nutty. We know why you like them. <laughs> <laughs> but I do like the pistachio. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> the pistachio, the amaretto, um, like the hazelnut. Those are all my faves mm. because they're just like really good nutty flavors. I, I like the nuts. That's what she said. So they're pretty good. <laughs> yeah, and I'll just end that. I'll just end that right there. They are the best flavors, though. Those are I, even though I do like my chocolate Milano. It's very good. But pistachio is good, too. Yeah. Uh, right now I'm just drinking my uh, my usual polar seltzer. I just finished a sugar free Red Bull. <laughs> Not sponsored, but surprise <laughs> shock. And I am having dark chocolate coconut almonds. Uh, I forget the name of the brand. I think it's Edward Mark, maybe. But they're from Costco and they're delicious and I highly recommend. Yeah, I know. My dad got those after I think you introduced him to them and they are so tasty. Mm -hmm. You're welcome, Uncle Ernie. Yeah. Yeah, you're, they are dangerous. They're delicious. Yeah. yeah, they're really addictive. I know. I have to have like some kind of dark chocolate at night. If anybody's seen my TikTok video about dark chocolate, that's made for reals. But I, I have to have a little bit of it at night. So if I don't have like a little Ghirardelli square with like the dark chocolate caramel one, I'll just grab like three of these and I'll be good. Something like yeah. that. Yeah. Nice. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, man. Yeah. Yeah. 
<laughs> so I know on another episode, you mentioned that you got the Kindle scribe and I was like, oh, I kind of want to get it, but I didn't really want to spend all the money. Well, I did it. I got it. <laughs> and I was like, you know what? Let me get it now and pay it off before my student loans start again next month. Nice. And honestly, it's been worth it so far. I'm obsessed with it. I told so you. It's for anybody who doesn't know, you can use it as a notebook as well as any reader, which is just amazing. And then I recently discovered, so we had a couple of arcs that we received to read from authors and they were sent as PDFs and you can read them on here too. You just have to send them to yourself. And I, I mean, it's just so far I'm loving that. And then the ability to take notes while you're reading. So usually I don't really take notes when I read, but now that we're doing the podcast, I started and it makes it so much easier. You were right. Yeah. It really, it's, it's really simple. It comes with a little pen. So you just write it right in. It's like having a notebook next to you, except you don't need to have the notebook and you could do it in the dark. So if I'm reading in bed while my husband's sleeping, I don't need to turn a light on. I could still make my notes and continue on my merry way. And I love it. Yeah. I'm really excited about it. I know. I love that feature that you showed me that you could actually take all the books. I mean, all the notes from the book that you're reading and just send yeah. it to yourself. That's such a great feature, especially yeah. for us, uh, for, you know, keeping our notes together for questions and everything for the episodes. Yeah. Uh, as soon as I, I, I discovered wish... that, I was like, Jess, did you know? Did you know? <laughs> I did not. <laughs> Uh, but I already loved it. So I just, you know, it just adds on some little cherries to my whipped cream on it. Um, so I love it already. But I wish I would have had it in school. Like, I feel like if, if you're yeah. someone listening that goes to school, like it's awesome for you because you could put your textbooks or you can even just, you know, if you're in an English class, you could put your, your books on it and then just take your notes for class. It's you don't even have yeah. to bring a notebook with you. It's like, yeah, it's great. I actually, I used it to take notes during a work meeting today Perfect. because I can never find my notepads and I, I always know where my Kindle is. So I was like, you I'm just going to use this. <laughs> see, it's for all of you. It's for everyone. <laughs> a Kindle scribe for us all. Not sponsored. Yeah, not sponsored. <laughs> <laughs> but do sponsor us, please. Love to. Yes, please. We love it. <laughs> I'd be happy to promote it. <laughs> Uh, I mean, for now, we do have a, a link to it in our bio if you do want to go check it out for yourself. But uh, but until until we are sponsored, this is real talk here. We are, <laughs> we are loving it. And uh, and you hear us say hey, Jeffrey Bezos, you out there? Jeffrey Bezos. Um, <laughs> CEO, no. don't <laughs> Yeah. Born in 1964. It's, it's Jeffrey, Jeffrey, Jeffrey Bezos. I still can't believe you never watched that uh, comedy special. You need to watch it. It's hilarious. I never seen that, but I heard the song from TikTok as we as one usually does. Yeah, learn a song <laughs> from TikTok. Yeah, and I was a fan of it from then, so it's pretty oh good. God. Speaking of learning things from TikTok, though, oh, God, it's been a very gossip heavy week on TikTok. <laughs> I don't know even know where to start. So I know yeah. there's the the Joe and Sophie drama. There's the Danny Masterson drama. That's very serious. It's not even funny. Yes. But then there's the Ashton and Mila little thing that was involved with yeah, that. Yeah, there's and so much going on. And I haven't had so much drama flood my TikTok since Salinas <laughs> and Haley Bieber. Um, that whole drama that happened like a few months back. Me and Alex were so on top of that, too. We would even really just call each other and be like, did you see it tonight? Did you see the gossip? Uh, we were just sending each other TikToks left and right. We knew all of the all the deeds. Uh, Actually, it was really funny at a fam family event. I think it was maybe 
my my niece's um christening I, I wasn't there i was sick but jess was talking to one of our other cousins who is a big justin bieber fan and she was like i had to ask though i needed to know where she stood on this issue so she had to like casually ask her like so which one are you are you team selena are you team Haley? <laughs> yeah because recently or before that she had said that she loved Haley. she was a big Haley yeah. bieber fan so yeah. i had to know i was like well which is it you know, and she was like, I'm team Selena. I was like, okay, all right. <laughs> She's probably just scared. Like, oh God, I don't know. I don't want to get, I don't want to get blacklisted. <laughs> well, before that though, it was, that was our fresh juicy gossip since before that we had the, the Amber Heard trial. Oh yeah. And yeah. Johnny Depp. And we were like plugged into that yeah. for weeks um, yeah. because that was fascinating. I just watched we even that. mentioned that up today. Yeah. I just uh, watched that documentary on Netflix. They have, I think it's three episodes on the media coverage of the trial and just a different few, a few different aspects of it. It was pretty interesting. I, uh, I was interested in, in, in it while I was watching. I dabbled. I, d- yeah. I dabbled. I dabbled a bit in the, my, in, in, in the trial. <laughs> my dog stepped on a bee. I don't know. Th- that girl is off. <laughs> There's something off about that girl. She she could yeah. she, she's such a liar. You know, yeah. I don't know. It was very fascinating to watch. I mean, uh, I the whole thing both, unfolds, yeah. but it was entertaining. Oh, I think, think they're both. I think they're bullshit. both liars. I think they're both abusive, but he's a better actor. So. Ooh. All right. Well, definitely. She can't act. Yeah. My dog stepped on a bee. <laughs> 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 and your dogs don't like it. Yeah. <laughs> they're like, oh, God, did you mention that bitch Amber Heard? <laughs> uh, I don't want to step on a bee. <laughs> they're trying. <laughs> oh that's like in the movie keanu i love that movie in the movie keanu about the little kitten with uh key and oh, peel yes. i love that movie <laughs> i love that movie so much i love how he's like i'm in the market for a gangster pet <laughs> and when he get when he has the kitten though and he's like showing the kitten the face of his like ex or whatever and he was like training him he's like kill kill <laughs> yes <laughs> that's how i've been training dexter <laughs> You're training her with with pictures pictures of Amber Heard. Amber (laughs) Heard. Oh boy. Yeah. All right. No, but I agree though. All over my feed has been uh, about Sophie and Joe, and I don't know if we're team whoever. uh, Let us know who you are, but obviously we're gonna go team Queen of the North. Gotta be. I mean, come on. You gotta be team Queen of the North. I I I can't. Don't 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 do my Sansa wrong. Don't do her dirty. She's been through enough. Sansa. Think about Sansa. I don't know. I know. There's just like, I don't know. There's just something about that whole thing that's sus. I feel like it's like his PR team or something trying to paint her in a bad way. And I'm not I'm not there for it because I know the Jonas Brothers and, you know, I know there's a lot of Jonas Brother love out there, but I feel like they're painted as these good husbands. And now all of a sudden, since they're getting divorced, they're going to have to try to step away from that for Joe. So I feel like they're coming at my girl Sophie and I'm not liking it. I don't know. I've never been a fan of Joe because he did my other girl dirty, Taylor Swift, back Mm. in the day. Mm -hmm. So I've I've never liked him. I've never I've never been a fan of their music. I did like Nick Jonas's solo album. I did enjoy that album. But aside from that, I've never been really into the Jonas Brothers, so I, I don't really get the hype. I don't really find them that attractive. Nick is probably the cutest, but I mean, I guess Joe, I, I like him in that movie, in the Jumanji movie, which I protested watching at first. I didn't because see I was it. like, no, I, I protest every. Yeah, no, every movie that they try to do that Robin Williams is in, I protest so hard until I actually give in and watch it and then like it. Mm. Like I did that with Jumanji, and I did that with uh, the new Aladdin. I was like, absolutely oh. not. I'm never watching that. It's Robin Williams only. I like the you new know? Aladdin. I loved the new Aladdin, yeah. and I loved that you know they gave Princess 
wish Jasmine some love mm-hmm. and they gave her a new light. And I was really appreciative of that because yeah. she was my favorite Disney character growing up. So, oh, really? Interesting. Yeah. I wanted a tiger. Come on, man. Yeah. That makes Come sense. On, man. You're right. That makes yeah. sense. I really like the new song that she sang in the movie too, Speechless. I really, I, I have that on my that playlist. Song. It comes up every once in a while and I just listen to it. Yeah, we listen to that often around here. We scream sing that in the house. So, <laughs> What was the other event too? Oh yeah. The other one that keeps coming up now is the one I was sending you to yesterday. About, Danny um, Masterson. Danny and- Masterson. Yeah. That guy is a creep and I'm glad he's going away. Yeah. And I'm glad he didn't just like get away with these things just because he's, you know, in Hollywood and he's got money and yeah. I don't know. Honestly, I think it's a really good uh, step in the right direction for for situations like this, because a lot of times, you know, these kind of things do get swept under the rug. And he's actually he was convicted and he's being held accountable. And it's really nice to see that happening in in Hollywood, because a lot of these these big time actors, I, I wouldn't even consider him a big time actor. That's the saddest mm-hmm. thing. He's like, uh, I, I never he liked was on him. a big show. You know, everybody yeah. knows the 70s show. Yeah. But they just but- they feel like they can get away with murder because they, you know, have fame and fortune and people aren't aren't allowing it anymore. And it's just yeah. nice. it's nice to see that finally starting to, to change. I agree. I agree 100 percent on that. And this whole, uh, you know, Mila Kunis and uh, Ashton Kutcher mixed up in this is yeah. just an interesting thing to see happening, like unfolding. Yeah. I don't know the whole deets yet. I don't want to just, you know, say we'll cast them off and be like, we don't like them. But mm. Mm. honestly, I like distrust anybody that is that famous and or has that much money. Uh, I'm pretty sure they they're all a little corrupt. <laughs> I know that's a really blanket statement. I'm sure it's not all of them, but mm, maybe 96 percent. I, I believe it's all of them. So. I I don't really feel surprised when things like this come out, but I do feel a little disappointed because I do know that Ashton has been trying to market himself as this person that is really working hard to advocate, advocate for yeah. yeah for the rights of children and for uh, sex trafficking victims, and you know to see this kind of stuff coming to light again, it's not that I feel surprised by it. I just feel kind of disappointed in him. Yeah, um, I know, especially since he kind of opened my eyes to the whole child trafficking thing. And now, you know, if he just did that, basically, so you won't look at him or point fingers at him. Yeah, that's terrible. I don't know. And Mila, I feel conflicted about because I feel like she's been a victim. I don't know if it's true or not. But when she was on that 70s show, she was like 14 or 15 years old. And yeah. Ashton Kutcher, Danny Masterson, they were like 19, 20 years old. And they had a bet going over who was going to give her her first kiss. And it's like just other oh. like they, they spoke about her in really crude terms, but then would say she was like a sister to them. It's just really creepy. I don't know. I any anybody, any any person that was a child actor. I feel I just assume was a victim and anybody yeah. that's in Hollywood, I just assume is uh, a perpetrator. I don't know, so, yeah, so. <laughs> I've been down a rabbit hole or two because, as I mentioned, I dabble a little in conspiracy <laughs> theories. Uh, so it's refreshing to hear you be, you know, so open about it and um, have uh, maybe traveled down a rabbit hole yourself, maybe with this. But I just feel like there's a lot going on behind the scenes in Hollywood that we just don't know about yet. And I'm glad mm. that it's starting to have some light shown on it. For yeah. Sure. Yeah. But, I don't I even don't I don't even even think for me, I don't consider it a conspiracy theory. I just I just don't trust anybody that has that much power, you know, and for no good reason. You know, you act in some movies and then you get all this power and then you become invincible. Like grow up, grow up, Peter Pan, grow up, Peter Pan, Count Chocula. I just don't like it. Well, listen, my dog, I have two dogs and one of my dog's names is Mila Kunis. <laughs> well, it's just Mila, but she was named like after Mila Kunis, basically. Yeah. 
And then my other dog's name is Keanu, who is named after Keanu Reeves. Yeah. And we are big Keanu Reeves fans. So I feel bad because I'm not going to take it out of my dog. I love my dog. Um, <laughs> but if I have to not like Mila Kunis anymore, then, you know, that makes me sad. But mm-hmm. uh, but as far as, as Keanu goes, we love Keanu. I have nothing bad to say about Keanu. I feel like he is just a genuinely all around good guy. And I would be very surprised if I ever learned something bad about him. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, but I was just talking to Alex before this about Keanu and I cannot believe that she's never seen any of the John Wick movies. That's like yeah. unacceptable behavior. Yeah. You need to watch them today. They're so good. <laughs> I, I love action movies. Today. No, don't I, watch I, I will today. watch them. I will watch them at some point. <laughs> don't I, watch I have four at once. <laughs> <laughs> I have heard good things. I know they're supposed to be pretty fun. And I yeah. do like Keanu Reeves. So I don't know. Maybe. Maybe I'll, yeah. I'll watch them. It's funny. We love quoting things from Keanu. Like uh, <laughs> from Speed. Pop quiz, asshole. Gun in your face. <laughs> what do you do? What do you do? <laughs> I love that movie. Speed. Speed is like one of my favorite movies. I don't care if it's corny. I don't care if it's bad. I think it's amazing. And I think Keanu looks amazing in it. <laughs> did, did you ever see um, Horrible Bosses too? The second one? Yeah. No, no I only saw oh. the first one. Charlie Day, I don't know his name in the movie, but Charlie Day, they were talking about something going over some list. And he was like, he's like, no, Speed's a great movie. He's like, that was my first introduction to Sandy Bay. <laughs> I think that's Speaking of which, I do love Charlie Day. I don't, his name is Charlie something in real life, but Charlie Day is his name on Sonny? On, this, on Sonny, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I love I him. Think so. I think he's hilarious. He gets me every time of any scene that he's in. It's the voice. Cause he always goes so high pitched. <laughs> Everything's funnier. Cause he's like, oh. he's like, oh. he's like Mickey Mouse all the way up here. Like, yeah. Speaking of Mickey Mouse and the Jonas Brothers, if anybody's watched the South Park episode, <laughs> what's what's all this talk about the purity rings? Ha 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 ha! I'm Mickey ha! ha. I'm Mickey ha! ha. <laughs> oh so man! <laughs> so what book are we reading right now? <laughs> So I just finished One Dark Window and I started, I, I basically started The Housemaid, but I really only read the, the prologue and then I fell asleep last night. So I am looking forward to reading more of that tonight. And I also yes. did start Bloodmarked as well. Oh. So yeah, I've been excited about that for a while and I had to keep putting it off to read other books for the podcast. And I was like, there's like a good time right now where I can sneak this in. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I did finish Akatar. Woohoo! Yeah. And I will zip like how I feel about it. But I did right after that uh, read The Housemaid. And let me tell you that I read that in basically a day. It was so good. I mean, you know, so entertaining. It it had me hooked. Uh, So we will go over that soon. I won't actually give anything away because I know you're reading it too. But I'm excited you're reading it because I actually texted Alex. I was like at two in the morning. (laughs) I "I finished Housemaid. And she was like, go to sleep. I was like, you go to sleep. Uh, (laughs) It's so good. <laughs> yeah, no, like at, at one point in the book, it just takes a different turn. And I'm just like, ooh, yeah, OK. And I just could not put it down from that point. So I've heard uh, such then, good things about the housemaid and just Frida McFadden in general. So oh, yeah. I, I can't I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah, I want to read more of her books. Definitely. Yeah. Uh, she she seems like she's going to have some good uh, some good thrillers in there. Yeah. 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 So I'm excited to talk about that. And if anybody wants to start reading it now, we will be doing The Housemaid uh, next soon. Tuesday. Yeah. Next yeah, Tuesday. Next Tuesday right. OK. <laughs> Very soon. Yeah. <laughs> we had a good conversation. <laughs> OK. It's time for the word of the day. Remember that we encourage our listeners to use these words in your daily conversations 
and with us on our socials. Stay tuned at the end of this episode when we will give out our sassy spatula award to whoever correctly uses the word in conversation during the previous episode. Each word of the day will come from the Word a Day Vocabulary Workbook by Francine Puckley or Franny the Pucks. Follow the link in bio to get a copy for yourself. Without further ado, today's word of the day is... Jibe, spelled G-I-B-E and pronounced jibe. It is a noun that is defined as an insult. It can also be used as a verb defined as to sneer, heckle, or insult. For example, we'd like to invite Roger to our cocktail parties as he's able to keep other guests entertained for hours on end with his stories and jibes and dinner rolls, perhaps, if anybody remembers that. <laughs> Alex, let's come so up with some additional... <laughs> Let's come up with some additional examples to help us remember. Can you think of any? Yeah. So in Divine Rivals, which we just read, Iris believes that Roman keeps jibing her. No, he keeps, her it, he keeps it, insulting her with jibes. I don't know if that's redundant. Maybe. Uh, maybe <laughs> Roman is a real jiber. Is jiber a word? I don't think so. I, I guess it can be used. It does say it can be used as a verb. Jibing. I don't know. <laughs> I just want to point out that since this has a soft G like a J, it kind of goes back to GIF and JIF and I win, but maybe not. No. Maybe so. Anyway. (laughs) Uh, Sometimes when the cameras aren't rolling, me and Alex joke around and like to jive at each other. (laughs) Accurate. Uh, Sometimes when I'm really upset with people at work. I throw some jibes their way without them knowing. <laughs> yeah, sometimes we can be real jibers. <laughs> real jibers. I, I don't know. I don't know if jibers a thing, but it's it's a thing right now. So yeah, it's a thing for today. Yeah, just keep jibing. Just keep jibing. I like that. <laughs> All right. So here's some trivia about the word jibe from grammarphobia.com. First recorded in the mid 16th century, the Oxford English Dictionary says to jibe is to speak sneeringly, to utter taunts, to jeer, flout, or scoff. Unfortunately, the source of this verb is unclear. The dictionary says it may come from the old French verb jiber. Oh, there we go. Uh-huh. Meaning, meaning to shake, perhaps used in the sense of horseplay or roughhousing. Well, I wanted to say that you're a sneeringly and that you're a flout and that it's scoff, not scoff. <laughs> I said scoff. What did I say? I said scoff. Whatever. Scoff. What? I. You know what? We're from. I, we're from. I'm. <laughs> I'm jibing Alex right now. Yeah, you are. You are. You're roasting me. <laughs> so sometimes it's on camera too. <laughs> uh, oh, now I, now I gotta. Now I gotta think about the way I say that word. I've already been self-conscious about how we say coffee because it's always like, oh, I'm drinking my coffee today. It's so good. <laughs> it's me. I'm a big coffeeer. Uh, also, you're a scoff. Scoff. I'm gonna scoff at you over my coffee. I can't wait until it gets cold out so I can start wearing my scoff. <laughs> my God. All right. As you know, we are all about booking and cooking. So let's get into our ingredient of the week. This week's ingredient is... Sandwiches! (laughs) Sandwiches. Inspired by the sandwiches that Iris and Roman eat on the bench during their first lunch together. We will make something using that ingredient to discuss in our potty episode, which will air on Thursday. 
Send us recipe suggestions on our socials and we may feature them in the future. Sandwiches. Susie, don't forget your sandwiches. I made you sandwiches. Oh Susie, don't forget your sandwiches. Hey, I made you. Before we get started, we want to include some trigger warnings. This book and the following discussion will include topics of war, violence, addiction, and death. So please be aware of that before you proceed. Also, just be aware that there will be cursing and spoilers. So if that's something that you're sensitive to, or if you haven't read the book yet, you may want to skip this episode and come back to it in the future. Before we dive into our discussion, here's a plot synopsis so everyone knows what this book is about. Divine Rivals is the charming tale of Iris Winnow and her journalistic rival, Roman Kit, that takes place in the middle of a war of the gods during a time reminiscent of a world war. Iris is an 18-year-old high school dropout trying her best to keep her family together. Her mother is struggling with addiction and her brother is missing from the front lines of the war. She is currently writing obituaries for the Oath Gazette newspaper paper where she and Roman are competing for a coveted columnist position. Amidst this, Iris has been writing letters to her brother on her typewriter and slipping them beneath the door of her wardrobe where they vanish. It is later revealed that Iris is the owner of one of three magical typewriters and that her letters, unbeknownst to her, appear in the room of Roman Kit, another owner of an enchanted typewriter. The two ultimately forge a connection by exchanging letters throughout the story, even as they are both thrown into the height of the god war. Divine Rivals is written by Rebecca Ross, a New York Times bestselling and acclaimed author of fantasy novels for both teen and adult readers. Rebecca has been an avid reader and lover of fantasy novels since her youth. She grew up in Atlanta, Georgia, and received a degree in English from the University of Georgia. Although Rebecca always wanted to write, she worked many different jobs before deciding to pursue her passion, including working on a dude ranch in Colorado as a school librarian and a lifetime captionist for a college. What's a captionist, you say? We still have no idea. But she did it. She also dedicated all of her free time to writing until her first novel was eventually published. Rebecca's novels have been published in 13 languages, allowing her to reach audiences across the globe. You're a captionist. <laughs> what, what is a captionist? Maybe I am. I don't know. No one knows. <laughs> all right. So let's get into it. Let's start off by discussing the characters in this book. Who is your favorite and least favorite? Did the characters seem believable to you? Despite Iris and Roman each owning a magical typewriter, neither of them possess any magical ability of their own. So how did you feel about them individually being magic-less in an enchanted world? Do you feel they are magical when they are together, though? So I'm sorry to throw a lot of that at, at you at once, but what oh, do you think, that's man? okay. So I don't know how I really feel about them being magicless. I think it doesn't seem that pretty much anybody in this world has magic. It's hinted that maybe in the past there were some people that could wield magic, but it doesn't seem that any of the characters that we meet in this book really have magic. So I didn't really think anything of it uh, while I was reading. In terms of them being magical together, I mean, I think in the sense, I, I don't think that together they create magic. However, I think their relationship is very cute. And in that sense, it's kind of magical. I do have some theories about maybe how we might see magic manifest in them or between them in the next book that we can talk about as we go on. But in terms of this book and where they were at in this book, um, I didn't really think much of them not having magic themselves and just being together. I think their relationship is very cute. And in that sense, being kind of magical. Yeah, I agree. I mean, the typewriters, no doubt, are magical. Mm -hmm. I love that it brings them together. I feel like maybe in a sense, their love or 
their connection is magical just because they both grew up in a magical environment where their grandmothers had touched with magic through the typewriters. It's mentioned that, uh, you know, Roman's house is magical. So I feel like they have elements of magic that bring them together because even though the letters bring them together and that's a magical element, they do find each other at work as well. So I feel like there's something going on there and I, I love it. I love the whole idea of the enchanted world. So yeah, um, I think though that they maybe individually, maybe apart are less magical than when they're together. So, okay. Yeah. All right. I do believe that they have this faded lovers connection. So in that sense, maybe, you know, the idea of a soulmate being magical. Yeah. I can see that for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes when you first uh, fall in love with somebody or, you know, it always has that like butterfly in your belly feeling. Yeah. So that like magical feeling. So this is just next level of that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So in the prologue, Iris is saying goodbye to her brother Forrest. He's preparing to enlist in this war of the gods. And Iris makes Forrest two promises, that she will take care of their mother and that she'll finish school. Unfortunately, she's not able to fulfill either one of those promises. And this theme of broken promises reappears in other areas of the book as well. So in what ways does this foreshadow Iris's relationship with her brother in the book? And do you think it foretells anything about her other relationships in the novel? So this is interesting because, you know, obviously, she can't fulfill those promises because when we're going to discuss in a little bit, her mother has some issues uh, with alcoholism, loses her job. So therefore, Forrest off to war, you know, it falls on Iris's lap in order to provide to make sure the lights stay on to make sure that they're they're fed. So she has to forego school in order to get a job. Uh, as far as protecting the mother, we'll talk about this a little later, but obviously something goes down with the mom. So she doesn't really fulfill that promise. But you know, her, her mother's her own person. She she really couldn't be with her 24-7, especially working on her own. Yeah. Uh, so I don't know if they were promises that were just made to be broken in a sense. But I think it definitely foreshadows maybe something going on later when we find out what happens with Forrest and his new change of personality. Perhaps maybe something will go on there. Uh, and I think it could foreshadow her relationship with Roman. Perhaps, um, you know, not to give too much away, but they do get married. They do make vows. So it is possible that she will not go through with all the promises she makes in the vow mm -hmm. if this is any foreshadow telling of that mm -hmm. um so i think it's interesting to consider that i think that that's there's a reason why there's those promises in the prologue why we're introduced to their uh, relationship this way so i think that going forward there will be something we will see and it may foretell some things about her relationship going forward yeah but one thing i mean there are a lot of broken promises but it, it was refreshing to see there is a character in the book we'll discuss later marisol and she she can fulfills her promises um but we'll talk about that i'll ziplock that for mm. a little bit later so that's interesting to see how that contrast plays out yeah i actually have a differing opinion on that but Good. when we get to it <laughs> Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, I agree with everything that you said. So not only is Iris unable to fulfill these promises, it is due to obstacles that she encounters in her life and not so much because she doesn't want to fulfill these promises. I think she really would have liked to and she did try. She just wasn't able to because life just kind of got in the way for her. And then Forrest also fails to fulfill a promise for her. So in the prologue, uh, she says, you know, promise that you'll write to me. And he says, I promise. And it turns out he's not able to fulfill that promise either. So I think that at least from what we're seeing right. in the novel, we don't really know how their relationship was prior to this, but it does appear that their relationship seems to be defined by this lack of an, or this inability to fulfill promises to one another. And I think that that's going to say a lot about their relationship in the next book and for what we 
see moving forward in terms of her relationships throughout the novel and maybe in other areas with other characters i agree with you i think this theme of broken promises may come back to their wedding vows between iris and roman and being unable to fulfill those promises so one of those things was that they their souls will always find one another so even though i'm really hoping that they do i'm Mm -hmm. a little worried that based on what we've seen so far that maybe they won't be able to you know keep that vow so and i know um in another discussion we had you you had mentioned you know the the title of the sequel is ruthless vows so i'm kind of curious to see what that might mean that sounds you know kind of ominous uh yeah. so and it's not called broken vows it's called ruthless yeah like that's a that's a word choice so yeah i'm really interested <laughs> to see what goes on behind that story so for those of you that don't know this is actually a duology so this is a two-part book mm-hmm. so we do have a part two coming we're excited about alex i think you said it comes out the day after christmas so yep. december 26th december 26th yeah so yes. and we if, both pre-ordered uh, it <laughs> uh, yeah i was just gonna say that if you if you haven't read it yet well obviously you haven't read the sequel yet if you haven't read this book yet go read it you can follow the link in our bio and order this and then if you enjoy it pre-order the the sequel so that you can read it as soon as it comes out because i know i can't wait so <laughs> oh yeah and if you've read this book already and loved it didn't know that there was a sequel coming out uh we will put that link in our bio for you as well if you choose to pre-order it yeah all right so going back to iris and roman iris and roman are considered rivals at work they're both young, hardworking, exceptional writers that are vying for the same columnist position. Their co-workers at the Oath Gazette newspaper appear to see a connection between the two of them before they themselves do. So what do you think of this? And in addition, Iris expresses that she makes an effort not to read anything Roman writes, whereas Roman chooses to read everything that Iris <laughs> writes. So what do you think this says about their characters? Okay, so I'll start with the second part of this question where we see this opposite reaction from both Iris and Roman, which I think just in general shows the differences between them and and their personalities. And this is kind of a theme throughout the novel too, that they are opposites and how those opposites come together. And I thought it was so cute to see this because Iris was like, oh, he's my rival. I'm not going to read anything that he writes just like kind of out of principle and because she doesn't want to have to see what he's writing. And Roman is the opposite. He's like, she's my rival. I need to know everything that she's writing and see what I'm up against. I just thought it was really cute to see that, uh, that difference between the two characters. I think it definitely shows that Iris is maybe a little less confrontational. She's more, oh, I'm gonna avoid even looking at this because I don't wanna know what I'm up against. And Roman is more confrontational where he wants to know exactly what he's up against. He wants to maybe prepare. And I thought that that was just really interesting to see. And I think it did say something about their characters and and their personalities um, without explaining it. You know, I, I love when authors do this where they show you how a character is without telling you how a character is. I I just really appreciate that writing. And I think Rebecca Ross did that really well in this novel in other areas as well. In terms of their coworkers, recognizing the connection between them before they did. I also loved this because I think this is very true to real life, especially where you have two people that have a connection, but they don't want to acknowledge it because something else is causing friction. So this is common in the enemies to lovers or rivals to lovers tropes that we see in novels where they probably, if they had met under different circumstances, would have been really drawn to one another. But in this case, they have something that's causing them to be at competition with one another. In this case, the uh, columnist position. And it's funny because everybody else around them are like, yeah, you guys can't stop jibing at each other. You can't, (laughs) you know... (laughs) (laughs) You can't stop um, 
talking to one another. You're always fixated on what the other one's doing. And it's clear to them that there's some type of connection. Whereas these two people are just like, it's just because he's my rival and I need to know what's going on. And they're just like, yeah, okay. You also think that he's very dreamy, you know? So I, I thought that this was cute to see. And I, I thought it was pretty realistic for this type of situation as well. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of like an outsider's looking in. And of course, the coworkers yeah. are going to see it before they notice it. But, you know, uh, it mentions in the novel how Iris is going and messing up his desk. She's making sure she's doing things <laughs> to annoy him, you know, so it's cute. You know, she obviously does see something before she even recognizes that she sees it because she wants to just cause him a little conflict because of the rivalry at work. But also notice me. Um, so <laughs> it's cute. It's kind of like subliminal flirting that mm -hmm. they're doing. The opposites attract thing. Obviously, this is rivals turn lovers type of story. We love that here. Mm -hmm. And I think it's cute that she doesn't want to read what he writes because she's afraid uh, maybe he'll be better than her or maybe you know, her competition will be, you know, it might it might hurt her writing in the process. If she's too fixated on what he's writing about, it might, you know, flaw her writing as well. So and yeah. I think it's, you know, he's obsessed with reading everything, but I think deep down it's more because he really respects and appreciates her writing and I think that you know he really he does view her as a worthy opponent and yeah. he sees her as someone like okay well she's vying for the same position and damn she's better than me you know <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> it's cute but he does also have that advantage where uh, we don't uh, she doesn't know it Iris at this point but they are sending each other letters to each other through a magical typewriter which we'll get into very soon and he has an advantage where he's getting to know her mm -hmm. But she doesn't know him. So he's more of a mystery to her. And of course, that makes somebody more interesting if you're into somebody and they're a mystery, you know, and he, she does quit school because like we said, she has to work to support her and her mother. So she hears him saying that she's, oh, Iris quit school or whatever. And she's like, oh, he's judging me. But how does he know that? You know, mm -hmm. so we get some clues in there that something's going on behind the scenes. And just like Iris, I mean, we might know a little bit, but not yeah. at that point, I don't think so. It's interesting. Yeah. Something else you had mentioned the other day too, when we were talking is her to go to piggyback on her flirting is so she knows that his name is Roman C. Kit and he won't tell her what his middle name is or what the C yes. stands for. And so she's like making up these funny names yeah, for him. She's Roman like, oh. conceited Kit. Yeah. And it, you know, it was cute because again, if you didn't care about this person, if you really were ambivalent towards them, you wouldn't even really take the time to be just jibing with them like that. So I thought that that was really cute to see. And I, yeah, I agree, definitely. it was definitely flirtatious, even if she was like, I hate him, but I'm going to flirt with him. <laughs> so I know yeah. you mentioned the the typewriters. It is revealed yes. in the novel that Iris and Roman are each the respective owner of a magical typewriter, and they had had them passed down to them by their grandmothers. So both of their grandmothers were close friends with another girl in their youth who was named Alouette, and she unfortunately became ill and cannot spend as much time with them as a result. So as a solution to that, Alouette's father finds a magic wielder to enchant the typewriters so that the three girls could maintain communication during Alouette's illness. And it's described in the book that the typewriters were, quote, constructed in a magical house on a magical street of oath by a man with a magical monocle that could discern magical bonds who soon vanished. So the third typewriter was sent to a museum following Alouette's death. What are your thoughts on these typewriters overall? Do you think the magic is what made Iris and Roman find one another? Do you think somehow the magic will always help them to find one another and reunite? 
So I love this aspect of the novel and I love this question because the whole idea of enchanted typewriters is so exciting. And I think that the third typewriter being in a museum, uh, for those of you who don't know, they do send each other unbeknownst to Iris at this time, but they do send each other letters. When one of them types up a letter, for example, Iris puts it in a wardrobe, it disappears and it goes straight to Roman's typewriter. They don't know at this time either that it's the typewriters that are actually connecting them magically like this. But it's interesting because there there is a third typewriter and that typewriter is mentioned for a reason. We don't really get to see that in part one. So I know we're going to end up seeing it in part two. There's really no coincidences when it comes to a writing of a story. So obviously there's a third there for a meaning and we're going to find out what that is. I think it would be exciting, you know, if the fact that, you know, obviously they're having this divine love between Roman and Iris, if in the end it just happens that the typewriter that's in a museum is displaying or uh, encasing their letters to each other, that's beautiful. So we'll see. But if somebody actually is going to intervene on this or help them out in some way, that would be interesting to see too. Uh, as far as them uh, finding one another through the magic of the typewriter, that would actually have been pretty easy to tell because both of their grandmothers were the ones who inherited these typewriters, who got these typewriters and who used these typewriters during that time when they were first uh, wielded. So of course, they're going to end up in the same house as their grandchildren. <laughs> But the fact that, you know, Roman and Iris both want to be writers, right? Where Roman could have done the family business. He could have went to a different field. Iris could have went and, you know, stayed in school. But obviously she couldn't stay in school. So she had to become a writer. Very interesting how fate plays out where they do actually use the typewriters and then become connected to one another. So I think that the magic of the typewriters maybe in some other way brought them together. And I do think that it would help them find each other because if they do separate at the end of this novel or if they do separate at some point, which we'll get to later, they will have the typewriters that they will be able to hopefully communicate to one another and find one another again. So yeah, I love this. It, we, we already talked about how it reminds us of uh, the movie You've Got Mail, yeah. but in an enchanted <laughs> way. And it reminds me of the movie itself because in the movie, Meg Ryan's, uh, I forget her name in the movie, but her mother owned the bookstore and... <laughs> Tom Hanks is, uh, I don't know if it was his grandfather, but his, he was the one that started this, you know, big monster bookstore, kind of like a Barnes and Noble type. And he basically somehow knew her mother and says, oh, she was enchanting. So the whole fact that now this is like a similar story, but there, uh, but it's an enchanting factor is just cute. I don't know. Yeah. I got that vibe from that too. I thought that was cute. But yeah. What do you think? Well, just to say, I agree. It's definitely kind of like a, a you've got mail, but a magical version. I know we've said that before, yeah. but it's definitely like a magical you've got mail. And I love that because I do. I love that movie. So yes, not um, wrong with that. Yeah. No, give me more of it. <laughs> give me more of the magic. <laughs> So uh, in terms of the typewriters, I loved this aspect of the novel. I thought it was really different to see that it was the typewriters themselves that were magical and it wasn't like, oh, just because she's putting it under the door, that that's a magical door, kind of like um, a Narnia type. Um, yeah. So so I liked that. So it follows them wherever they go. As long as they have their typewriter, they'll be able to have access to this magic. And in terms of them being able to always find one another, I think as long as they have access to their typewriters, yes, they'll always be able to find one another. And, you know, by the end of the novel, they are separated. I do think in the next novel, we will see 
them in some way using the typewriters to then reconnect and, and find one another. So I definitely think that there's a connection there. In terms of the magic bringing them together, so they obviously, it, the magic did bring them together through the typewriters because they were able to communicate with one another, you know, even if one party didn't really know that yet, uh, that it still is what was able to allow them to create that connection. In terms of it finding them, I don't know, because, the, you know, it, the, I don't think the magic is what made them work together. However, I do believe that there's this idea in the novel of faded lovers, and there were a lot of things in, in Iris's life that led her to then getting the job at the Oath Gazette, as well as Roman. And so I think this idea of being faded for one another can be seen as like a magical aspect. And that I, I think that there's that rolled in on top of the typewriters being magical. So I do think that this idea of them being fated for one another is what ultimately brought them together and the typewriters allowed them to develop the connection. Yeah, I agree. And I did also think the same as you. I got Narnia vibes at first in the first couple of chapters. I was like, oh my God, it's going to yeah. be a magical wardrobe. You know, that's <laughs> Narnia style. And that if you, anybody remembers uh, when we were doing our interview session, second episode, we mentioned uh, the books that we grew up on. And Narnia was the first one that I read that made me love literature. So I was, you know, I wouldn't have been mad at it, um, yeah. but I'm glad that it turned into a, a little bit something more unique. So yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And I did really enjoy the backstory, learning about how these typewriters, I, I liked that there was a story that it was explained. It wasn't just like, oh, we have these random, you know, magic typewriters, just deal with it. And it's like, no, yeah. there's an actual reason for this. It, I, I liked learning about this. I, I loved the idea that it was passed down through the families. Their grandmothers were friends at one point. And it was just, I, I also liked this little tidbit that we got in the quote as well, that the, they were made by a man who could use magical bonds to put the magic into the typewriter and that he vanished after that. So I'm curious mm -hmm. to see what that was about. And I'm hoping maybe we get a little bit more of that in the sequel. Maybe we're going to find this man again. Who knows? Ooh. Um, yeah, yeah, I'm sure we might get a little more. I'm sure we'll get more clarity about that. I would also like to get more clarity. I love the fact that Roman's grandmother is still alive. Yeah. So maybe we can get more of her side of the story or more information from her. Yeah. That would just be so exciting and interesting. I'd love to hear so. more from Nan. From, yeah, from she's Roman's adorable. <laughs> she's absolutely adorable too. So she is, we, yeah. we love cute little old, old ladies. So. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. I do. <laughs> so Rebecca Ross actually stated in an interview that in the sequel, readers may get an answer to the question of the third typewriter. Yay. Yeah. Uh, for example, do the letters also go to that typewriter in the museum? Is someone else receiving the letters? So how do you think the third typewriter... And we did touch on this a little bit, but how do you think that that typewriter may factor into the sequel? Yeah, so I think that there could be a few different reasons that there's a third typewriter. Not, I mean, obviously we know the main reason why there initially was a third typewriter, but in terms of the next novel, first of all, I agree with you. Why are we bringing up a third typewriter if it's not going to factor in? It's definitely going yes, to. A hundred percent. So I think it could be one, we don't know if Iris has her typewriter. We know that Roman has his. So maybe she needs to seek out this typewriter to then be able to communicate with, with Roman because if she doesn't have hers anymore, then she would need to get access to that third one. 
Um, mm -hmm. Either that or we don't know if these letters are also going to that third typewriter. And if they are, if somebody's going to be intercepting them, I was thinking maybe somebody finds them and then sees Iris trying to communicate with Roman. We don't know if with the separation at the end, if they're going to be able to communicate, maybe there's going to be some type of barrier there. And then the letters go to the third one instead. And somebody intercepts them, sees that she's trying to get in touch with Roman and says, hey, I can help you with this. Maybe the mysterious monocle man who knows. And then they go on a journey together to try to find Roman. I, I think it's going to be something along those lines. Uh, what do you think? I think it sounds exciting. So, <laughs> I mean, let's, let's on a realistic note, I know this is a magical world, but on a, a realistic note, if this typewriter, this third one in, in question is sitting in a museum in a glass case, and you're somebody who cleans the glass case or somebody who's walking around, you're going to see these letters just popping up. Yeah. Okay. So it's not like, you know, people are just going to be like, oh yeah, letters just keep going in there, whatever. Somebody's going to want to read those. <laughs> if I worked there and I was just even cleaning the glass or something and I seen them, I'd be like, uh, hello, I need to get in there. <laughs> I need to see what's <laughs> happening. There's love letters being shared. I need to know what's going on. So I have a feeling maybe somebody is witnessing this and somebody will somehow intervene and that'll come into play. Mm -hmm. uh, if it's not as realistic as that, then maybe like you said, it could also make sense too, if she doesn't have her typewriter because she had to leave abruptly, as we'll get into in a little bit, she had to leave abruptly from the war front and she does return home so perhaps she doesn't have it and she has to get access then it would make sense that she would go to the museum and get it so mm -hmm. i think we're definitely going to see it play uh make a huge factor in the next book I, we just don't know what yet so yeah. that's kind of exciting anticipating what it might yeah. be so uh, but yeah, I think it'll hopefully it might even have something that's going to bring them back together again. That might be something that either way uh, helps them find one another again. Yeah. All right. So it is revealed early in the novel that the letters Iris receives are from Roman. However, he chooses not to disclose his identity to her and instead identifies himself by his middle name, which is Carver. What did you think of this decision? Once again, you've got mail. He knows mm -hmm. she don't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> she doesn't know. Yeah, I mean, I thought this was a good decision on his part, just because I mean, yes, it's deceptive. We don't love that. But I mean, had he told had he have told her, then we wouldn't have had this great story of them, re you know, exchanging letters and it being so cute. Mm -hmm. So I feel like for a story perspective as a reader, I'm glad he didn't say it. Mm -hmm. But in real life, I'd be like, are you serious, man? <laughs> Let her know. <laughs> How dare you? You know, uh, so obviously for the story, I, I think he made the right choice. She wouldn't have been so open. She wouldn't have been so uh, vulnerable and personable, you know, with with this person that she thought was someone else. And they were sharing each other's stories. Uh, but he did know. And I thought that that was interesting at one point where he does share a story with her about his sister having passed. Uh, and he never told anybody that before. So he does share that story with her because he knows that she's in a vul vulnerable state and he wants to help her out. Mm -hmm. um, so had he you know, had they not been talking with the letters, he hadn't told anyone before. I'm, I'm wondering if he would have even mentioned it if they were just speaking in person. Mm -hmm. So I, I love this. I love the whole aspect of, you know, the uh, who, who is it? It's this guy Carver. Also tying in with the sister, you know, his sister called him Car Carver and that's his middle name. It's not conceded. It's <laughs> Roman <laughs> Carver kit. So, you know, it, it was kind of like a little hint, like, hey, I maybe you knew my name was Roman C. Kit. 
maybe you were trying to figure it out. Maybe you weren't. He didn't really know, but it should have been a little clue for her, maybe that that's what the C stood for. So had she have known that that was his middle name, maybe he thought maybe she might have known could have been a clue for her. So So I I agree that this was in terms of the story and and all of that, it was the appropriate decision. Iris definitely would not have continued to, you know, write to him if she had known that it was Roman. She definitely would not have been as vulnerable and open as she was. And, you know, I, I obviously that's why Roman chose not to disclose it as well, because he knew that they weren't at a point in their relationship in person where she would feel comfortable disclosing this kind of vulnerable side of herself to him. So it made sense. I didn't really like the deception. I know it, it's cute because this is a cute story and they both like each other. And it turns out she likes him in person, you know, after they get to know each other better. But it always, you know, it brings me back to tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow where Sam was doing the same exact thing to Sadie. And it, it's it's deceptive and I don't like it. But for the story, it was cute. I also liked that he didn't actually lie to her. So what happened, how he came to the idea of saying Carver is she asked outright for his name. And he said, well, my sister called me Carver. So, you know, you can call me Carver, which is true. His sister did call him Carver. It is his middle name. So he didn't really lie to her, but he also didn't. Knowing that he knew who she was and knowing that she knows him in real life, he did not choose to disclose, you know, my sister called me Carver, but this is Roman Kit. So (laughs) it's, you know, I I feel that this is a gray area for me in the book. Um, Ultimately, I did enjoy this book and I liked the interaction between them and we wouldn't have been able to see their relationship relationship unfold on the page the way that we did if he had disclosed it to her. So it's fine for the novel. I just, I do feel that the deception is a gray area and I still don't think it's romantic. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, in real life, if you were communicating with some typewriter magically and we were getting these letters, that would be super exciting, by the way. Uh, And the person you found out later on, it was somebody that you knew and they were lying, not lying, but not disclosing that. I'd be like, all right, red flag. So yeah. Since and it's a it, cute story. It also <laughs> it's the whole premise of the story. Yeah. yeah, it just it takes the consent away, you know. So yes, if she had known it was him, she wouldn't have been as open, but she wouldn't have wanted to be as open. And so it kind of removes that idea of consent on her part to say like, oh, I would like to tell you, Roman, about this part of my life versus I would like to talk to this person that I don't believe is Roman about this part of my life. So, you know, again, it's like a little bit of a gray area, but I, I don't take issue with it too much in overall for the novel. Yeah, we like it. It's cute. It's romantic for the novel. Hmm. Uh, Well, somewhat. Alex doesn't think so. But (laughs) I don't uh, think the deception is romantic. No, not the the deception. The exchanging of the letters and getting to know each other that way is is romantic. And that their grandmothers were connected in some way and they had no idea. So I think that's cute. Yeah, there's a lot of romance in the book. It's just that's the one thing I don't find romantic. Well, later (laughs) in the novel, obviously she does find out. After Roman's injured in the war, Iris discovers the truth about Carver being Roman. Roman C. Kit. Roman Carver kit. So what do you think of the truth and how it unfolded? Uh, What do you think of Iris's reaction? And how do you think you would have reacted to the news? Okay, yeah. So I I have no idea how I would react to this news. I if I had to imagine, I I think I would initially be pretty angry. I think just because that would be my first gut feeling is I would feel maybe betrayed, I would feel deceived, and I would feel angry as a result. And then 
I would probably feel pretty confused as well because now I have to try to wrap my head around Carver is Roman and Roman is Carver and these are two people that I thought were two different individuals. Turns out they're one person. I would have to take time to process that before I could really move forward. I think ultimately I would end up being maybe not okay with it, but I would forgive the person forgive Roman. But I think initially there would be that anger. And I think I would feel pretty betrayed. I I would feel a lack of trust because of the deceit. So it would take me maybe a little while to build that trust up again. And I I would certainly hear him out and hear, you know, his reasonings for everything. So that that's what I think in terms of how I would react to this news. I don't know how I I feel really about how the truth I, I, I liked the way that Iris discovered this this truth. So what happened was they were on the front lines of the war reporting on the war efforts as war correspondents at this point. And they are uh, attacked, their their unit is attacked while they're out there doing their reporting and Roman gets severely injured, but he also lost his bag and she goes back to help some other soldiers. They needed additional help. So she's helping them get back to the, the safety of their, wherever they were staying. And she finds his bag, she grabs it, she brings it back to the bed and breakfast where they're staying. And she, at this point, sees the letters Roman had also written her a letter right before this that she was reading on their way to the front lines and he kept distracting her because he didn't want her to he had revealed in that letter that it was him Roman but he didn't want her to read that while they were like in the trenches being bombed so he kept trying to distract her and then she does see that letter when she gets back she sees the letters in his bag that he had been carrying around with him and she sees that the typewriter is an alouette typewriter so I liked the unveiling of all of this. I thought it made sense and it was fun to read that part. In terms of Iris's reaction, I thought everything was too quick. So at at this point in the book, I felt everything was a little too rushed. So there's, I think, a single day where she's pretty upset. She leaves the hospital wing where he is and she goes back to the bed and breakfast. And then the next day she's basically like, oh, but I love you, Roman. And then they get married like two pages later. And then it, it just felt everything just felt very rushed for me at this point. So I didn't really care for that. But Overall, it, it made sense in the book and, and it was cute. I just wish there would have maybe been a little bit more conflict involved, a little more tension. It felt very anticlimactic at this point because it, it was kind of leading all up to this, to this big reveal. And then once it came, it was just like, oh, awesome, let's get married. And then, you know, some <laughs> other stuff happens and then the book ends and it's just like, OK, well, what, <laughs> you know? <laughs> So, yeah, I agree. I mean, I don't know how I would have reacted under duress of war. So obviously she has this war going on behind them. So uh, everything does get a little rushed for her in this case. Not saying they had to get married because that's super rushed. But back then, this is it gives you the idea that this is a a, a time frame, you know, much uh, earlier on, maybe a century ago or so. So obviously things were a little bit more different than where people were getting married and younger. But I definitely would have had the same reaction. She does get married at first, not mad, but she feels, you know, deceived. Uh, But at the same time, she ends up having the same reaction like we see in You've Got Mail. I wanted it to be you, you know, (laughs) Uh, where she did want it to be him. Uh, And then they merge together. And it's cute the way she goes about it, because after she does come to terms with it, she makes him read her one of the letters. uh, So this way, you know, it it merges Roman and Carver together for her. Mm -hmm. Um, And I thought that that was super cute. The whole thing about, you know, get my bag when he was injured um, on the war front and he wanted her to look at it. He had typed the letter before that to try to give her 
the idea. And he does mention that it's him at the bottom of the letter. But like Alex said, she didn't have a chance to see it. But it was cute because before he was typing up that letter, he yells through the wall because they are staying at a bed and breakfast in uh, rooms near each other. And he says, uh, you know, can you give me a synonym for uh, it wasn't divine? What was the word you said? Sublime. Mm -hmm. So uh, you know, he's, he yells and says, I need a synonym for sublime. And she's so suspectful of it because she's suspicious because she says, you know, she's questioning him saying, hey, but I know that on your desk, you at work, you always used to have all these thesauruses. So why is he asking this? You know, it was cute little clues that he was trying to subtly get to her. Mm-hmm. And then Addie, who we'll mention later, one of the girls that's also a war correspondent staying with them at this bread and, bed and breakfast. Uh, she mentions a word and so does Iris. And he ends up putting them in the letter to give her a clue. Uh, so I just thought that whole everything about that was cute. Uh, I really liked the way that that unraveled. Uh, Iris's reaction was to expect it to be expected. Of course, she was, mm-hmm. you know, upset and conflicted with it at first. But like Alex said, I do feel that it got rushed towards the end there. And we'll get into that more later on um, with the other questions. But, you know, uh, towards the end of the novel, it does seem a little rushed. And I think it's because maybe Rebecca Ross at one point was like, all right, let me just tidy up these loose ends real quick so I can turn this into a second book. But I'll ziplock that for later. But it, def- it definitely all goes pretty quickly after that, yeah. after she realizes it's him. Yeah. All right. So let's talk about these letters that Iris and Roman exchange. What were your thoughts, your initial thoughts when Iris receives that first letter back from Roman, which simply stated, this isn't Forrest? What did you think of their discussions? And what did you think of, of that initial letter? <laughs> So that scene was awesome because, of course, you know, you get that and then the chapter ends and you're just like, what? Uh, <laughs> I, I love that. It really got me hooked on the book from that point. And when they were exchanging letters, I was hooked. I loved the discussions. You know, I loved how open they were with one another and they really helped each other because individually they were both going through things. And I feel like when they had each other to talk to through these enchanted uh, exchanges, that it really helped them out personally. And when that part came and it said, this isn't Forrest, I got a feeling and I was like, oh, who is it? You know, <laughs> I was like, ooh. <laughs> uh, and it, it seemed really interesting because I was like, all right, well, if she's been writing all this time and it's not to her brother, who could it be? Plus there was all this mention of gods. So I was thinking, I was like, oh my God, is it going to like some other world? Is it in some other realm? I had all these feelings and I really appreciated that. So what did you think? So for the first letter that she receives where he said, this isn't Forrest, I did think it was going to be Roman only because like I knew that this was a rivals to lovers. And, right. you know, I, I kind of knew the concept of the book. So I was like, OK, well, now is she going to find out that it's Roman or how is, you know, but I, I had a feeling that it was it was Roman. Um, but overall, I, I really enjoyed reading their letters to one another. I really liked their discussions. It was nice to see this connection forming on the page so you can really see this organic relationship unfolding and see how they're developing this connection. And it's happening right in in front of you as you're reading these letters. I, I really enjoyed reading that. It was really sweet. And it also gave us some good information about the characters without a lot of exposition in the novel, which I I mentioned this earlier. I always appreciate that from an author mm-hmm. in a book. Um, you know, show me what the characters are like. Don't tell me. And I, it, it was just really sweet. This is a really sweet book. And the letters were very just, it's just cute. It's just like feel good type of reading. Yes. You know, definitely like a comfort type of, of read, especially for the first half of this book. I agree. During their exchanges, Roman provides Iris with the myth of the gods, including the story of Enva and Dacker, or Enver and Daka, the two <laughs> gods currently at war with one another. Enva has a magical harp with which she plays divine music and ferries mortal souls into the afterworld. Daka 
is the god of vitality and healing. What do you think of the myth of Dacher and Enva? Do you feel that their story correlates with Iris and Roman at all? And do you think that this is mirrored in the theme throughout the novel that Iris and Roman are, quote, better together? Earlier in the novel, it's explained that there are actually five gods that have been defeated by mortals, resulting in century-long slumber. So why do you think that the gods are all starting to awaken now? Okay, so I'll start at the beginning. I really like the myth of Dacker and Enva. So basically, we find out that Dacker is the Lord of Underlings, um, and Enva is a uh, god of the sky, kind of, and she plays this beautiful, beautiful music. She's also considered to be the fairest of them all. <laughs> she is um, supposed to be just absolutely beautiful and everybody loves her. And so Dacker decides that he needs to have Enva all to himself. He goes to basically get her and bring him into his underworld with him. She doesn't initially agree to. However, he starts killing off mortals basically and sending his monsters after them so that she will then agree to come underground with him, which she does. Uh, but she ends up escaping at some point by playing her divine music that puts them to sleep. So she puts them to sleep for a hundred years and then they, they awaken. This is actually separate from when all of the gods are put to sleep by being defeated by the mortals. So I don't know why all the gods are starting to awaken now, but at that point when Dacker and his underlings were put to sleep by Enva, it was because of her divine music. I just thought this whole uh, mythology was really interesting. It was fun to read about. Um, it definitely gave me Hades and Persephone vibes, which I love. I love that mythology. Um, and I love reading about it and retellings and things like that. So I, I enjoyed learning about this. I enjoyed reading about it. And I do think that there is a correlation between Iris and Roman. So when I first started reading this, I thought that it was going to turn out that Iris was connected to Enva in some way and Dacker was connected to Roman in some way. And it doesn't appear that they are. However, we might get more on this in the sequel. So I'm looking forward to that. Um, I definitely think that there if so originally I thought that Enva was actually going to be Iris and Dacker was going to be Roman and that's definitely not the case. But maybe they are some type of representation of them. And it seems like there is this connection both between Enva and Dacker as well as between Iris and Roman and maybe that's why they had this connection or that they were kind of fated to be together but maybe they're going to have this this connection and this story unravel in a more mutual way where Dacker seems to be really obsessed with Enva and she doesn't seem to reciprocate that and Iris and Roman seem to really be connected so yeah I'm looking forward to to reading more about this I like the idea of Iris and Roman being better together at one point they are this is when Roman is injured on the war fronts and the trenches while they're reporting on the war efforts and when she goes back to help the soldiers as I mentioned earlier he's telling her no you know stay with me we're better together you know don't, don't don't leave. And I definitely think that this is something that's going to come back into the sequel. And it's really interesting because for the first half of the novel, they are separated, but they're communicating through their letters. For the second half of the novel, they're together and things do seem to be better. And then by the end of the book, they're separated again. So I'm really curious to see what that separation is going to look like. And if it's true that they really are better when they're together, or if they're both going to have these separate journeys uh, in the second novel, that's going to 
you know, impact their characters at all. Yeah, I agree. But I have to start because at first you said, all right, let's start with and for, or start with the beginning. And it reminded me of uh, a sound of music. Let's start at the very beginning, a very, a very good, good place to start. <laughs> when you read, you begin with all right. A, B, C. <laughs> I could not. I could not. So All right. that had to be done. Sorry. Yes. Guys. Also, I will sing that whole song. <laughs> Same. All right. Maybe you guys will get a song later. We'll see. We'll see. I mean, you guys kind of kind of just got one now, but yeah, just a little snippet. <laughs> just a little snippet. And so, uh, no, I agree with everything that you were saying. And I, I 100% thought that Dacker and Enva were going to be Iris and Roman. But we see at the end of the novel that this is, is not happening. That's not the case. However, like Alex said, they could be uh, representations in the mortal form of them. The thing that was interesting is that they mirror them in some way, but they also are opposites because where Enva's trying to run from Dacker and Dacker's trying to kidnap Enva and make him, uh, make her love him. Roman and Iris don't have that issue. You know, they're drawn to one another equally. They want to be together. Uh, So I think that that's interesting. I 100% think that there's going to be something there that relates the two gods with these two lovers. I feel like, you know, there's a reason for this. And there is a reason that these two gods are the ones that are awakening. Maybe all of the gods are awakening. We just don't know yet. There are some some subtle hints, maybe. Uh, you know, speaking of the mother, Iris's mom, something does happen with her, which we'll discuss soon in the novel. It's possible that maybe she has a relation to Alva, one of the other gods in this in this novel. So we will see uh, perhaps if something is related there as well. But I do feel like it's going to correlate some way with Iris and Roman with the with the gods and that we'll notice that and we'll figure out what that is in part two. I do think that the theme of them being, quote, better together is apparent in the novel as well, because when they're apart individually, they're not doing as well as when they're together and they're, you know, with one another. At the end, when they do separate, bad things do happen to each of them in a different way. So I feel like them being better together has some kind of ultimate me- uh, meaning as well that, that we're going to see unfold in the second part too so i don't know why they're starting to awaken right now the gods perhaps their slumber ended it was a time frame thing and i'm not sure i think they do say that it was a certain time frame and maybe they're awakening earlier perhaps i know that they uh and if it does play something that puts dacker and his cronies asleep perhaps he woke up and didn't see her there and that's why he's causing hell they don't really get into that they do get into their backstory a little but they don't get into why they woke up yet so if i had to make assumptions it definitely has to do with something going on with the story where the gods have to awake from this slumber for a reason obviously and i'm excited to see what that reason will be that's all i have for now i'm not sure exactly why because we weren't given all of the information just yet but i'm looking forward to receiving more details yeah i'm really hoping there's a lot more of the fantasy elements the mythology between the gods in the next book and i think that we will see that i think it's kind of all heading in that direction so it'll be fun to to read about yeah and i don't think there's coincidences so if there's five gods, three typewriters, and we're not getting the other three gods, and we're not getting the other typewriter, clearly the part two is what we're, we're missing. So yeah, yeah. Yay. All right. So speaking of the gods, it is described in the novel that Enva recruits mortal soldiers in her war against Dacker by playing her harp, her divine music, and the soldiers hear the music, and they then go and join 
her her cause. So this is what happened with Forrest in the beginning of the novel. He heard Enva's music and almost immediately left for the front lines. So at the Oath Gazette, there were headlines that stated, resist the siren's call to war. Enva is our most dangerous threat. All stringed instruments are outlawed in Oath. What do you think this suggests about the town of Oath and their opinion of the war? Yeah, this is all very interesting. So we mentioned this uh, previously when we were talking with ourselves because I guess I'll just say it, but basically we did record this already. We had a two hour conversation and it, the file got corrupted. So we're here again. <laughs> <laughs> so we have to try to just kind of say what we said, but we did mention that prior recording that this is kind of reminiscent of the draft. Uh, so this is a fictional world. Obviously we don't have magical typewriters here that we know of. That would be cool. But this is a, a fictional depiction of a world that we're not living in. And even though we had the draft in our war back in the day, in this case, they're having something similar, but men or and women in this case are being called to war against their will under some sort of spell. When they hear music, it makes them want to join the front lines. So I, I think it's interesting that it's Enva's music that's calling them in this case, but there's definitely something with Dacker calling to his soldiers as well that we just don't know of uh, exactly what it is yet. But the Oath Gazette, the newspaper that Roman and Iris are rivals at, they keep putting out this propaganda only on Enva being a threat where Dacker is not a threat. And meanwhile, he's all these monsters that we'll talk about in a little bit. You know, we don't know what Enva has on her side. So, you know, it's just interesting that it's a little a bit of a sexist underlying theme here that the woman is bad, not not the the male god. The goddess is the one that, you you know, is the danger, most dangerous, quote, most dangerous threat. And then as a result, all of stringed instruments are then outlawed in this town. And I just think that's a little harsh to start infringing on rights of citizens based off of that. So I don't agree with, you know, all stringed instruments being outlawed because if it's Enva's music that's calling them to war, it wouldn't be the other instruments. Uh, but it's also odd because you do find families in this town, which we'll talk about in a little bit, like Roman's family and uh, another family that they're associated with are basically on Dacker's side. So it's interesting to see uh, that this whole town seems to be more geared towards, you know, resist Enva's call, maybe fight for Dacker or something like that, or maybe help out Dacker because we do learn some things that are happening behind the scenes there that might be being made, maybe bombs or something being made to help out Dacker's side. So I just think it's ironic that the town is called Oath. And usually Oath means truth. And like if you're under Oath, you tell the truth. Uh, and this town is kind of being deceitful. They're not exactly being honest. They're not exactly not exactly being impartial. They're they're more geared toward, toward blame the goddess and maybe fight for the other side, maybe because he's a male. We don't really know. I just think it, it's pretty interesting, all of it. So and I do think that this is just my theory, but perhaps everybody being more on Dacker's side in this town town may have something to do with Dacker putting them under a spell, ironically, while they're saying, oh, Enva, you know, resist her spell, but maybe they're under a spell from Dacker themselves. It doesn't get into that. There's no supporting evidence for that. It's just maybe an idea that that could be possible. Maybe he was, you know, slumbering under their town or something. But something's definitely linked to to the uh, the plot of the gods, maybe from this town. So um, so I agree with some things you said. I, I disagree with some others. So I, I do agree that this has sexist undertones. And I, I don't know if it was supposed to or not, but a siren is a mythical being that lures uh, usually, what are they, what do you call them? Like sailors? They, sailors. Sailors to their death. <laughs> yeah. yeah. They So they lure them to their death, essentially, yeah, with, with music. So I understand the connection. However, I do think 
referring to this god as a siren because she's recruiting soldiers seems unusual. And I do think that this was put into the book as a metaphor for the draft. And I think that this is supposed to be representative of people questioning in real time, in real life, what would have been the draft during the times of the world wars and things like that. I don't agree. I, I don't think everybody in the town of Oath is on the side of Dakar. In fact, it is made clear in the book that everyone is pretty much on the side of Enva. And then the people, there are small groups who do support Dakar. However, they are, that is frowned upon and people kind of look at them differently. They don't actually broadcast their support for Dakar. It's kind of underground because they're kind of scared to, to admit that they support Dakar, that they're Dakar sympathizers. So I don't agree that the whole town appears to be siding with Dakar. It seems to be small little groups that are siding with him, like it would be in any war, and that most people are on the side of Enva. However, they don't agree with her methods of recruiting mortal soldiers. And I mean, it is interesting that she does choose to to um, recruit soldiers in this way. And, you know, why is she recruiting mortal soldiers? Does she she need to have mortals on her side. Dacker has his monsters. We don't really know who else is making up Enva's army. Is it only mortals? And maybe that's why it is a concern because this is a war between the gods and to, you know, have the mortals be involved in that seems unfair, especially since they're fighting against literal monsters. But we also then, like you mentioned later, find out that Dacker does also recruit uh, mortal soldiers just in a different way. So we'll talk about that when we get to it. But overall, I think it does suggest that there is a lot of maybe disapproval of the war in the town. Not everybody agrees with it. And there is a lot of controversy over which side people believe is in the right. And even throughout the novel, Dacker is made to seem as the villain, but maybe, maybe he is, maybe he isn't, you know, maybe that's something we'll find out more about in the future. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, more of this plot and more information about the gods in the next book. I'm looking forward to the next book to learn more. Yeah, me too. I mean, I did say some families, obviously, you know, Roman and Iris aren't part of that either. And definitely not Roman's grandmother. They're more outsiders. But I think that there's there there's hinted at in the Oath Gazette that I forget his name. What's the boss's name there? Zeb. Zeb. That he uh, may have somebody in his ear, yeah. upper level, that's having him spread this propaganda against Enva, yeah. uh, which may also indoctrinate some people in the town to, into thinking maybe Dacker's right or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, and I think that's strange and interesting at the same time because she does go to a different newspaper when she, she, uh, her and Roman are vying for the position. And we find out later that uh, Roman does get the position and she goes to the rivalry newspaper who is actually impartial. They're Mm -hmm. not actually taking any sides. They're sending over war correspondents to get the real information. And I think you're right, actually, just to respond to what you said about we don't really know if Dacker is bad, but we do know the backstory of Enva running from Dacker, where he's Mm -hmm. trying to pull her to the underworld. And typically the underworld is associated with not so good. So uh, (laughs) I think it's very ironic that Enva, in this title of this newspaper title, this headline rather, uh, that Enva's call is calling the the kids to war or the people rather to fight the mortals to fight in war. Because in the backstory, for those of you who aren't reading it, it does say that, you know, Enva plays this music to help the souls cross over in a sense. She's playing this music to help them find peace on the other side. And now all of a sudden it's she's 
using it to lure soldiers. It's interesting. So maybe in part two, and this is just a theory, but perhaps in part two, two we're going to find out that it's not actually Enva doing this, but rather Dacker uh, mimicking her music or something like that to lure these soldiers because it seems out of her character if she's the one that's trying to, you know, lull them peacefully. And I don't know. It just seems yeah. like there's something there that we just don't know yet, which uh, which is obvious. We don't know. Uh, but there's something there, I think, interesting that we're going to find out in part two related to this. Yeah, I mean, it's it's possible. I think it's interesting. She does. So she is the god of ferrying mortal souls into the afterworld. So after they've passed away, she brings their souls into the, the afterlife. And Dacker is the god of healing and vitality. Mm. So that doesn't sound bad either. You know, right. that sounds like a good thing. So it, it'll be interesting definitely to learn more about the gods and just in general if you look at like greek mythology and roman mythology even though i will stand by my thesis that the romans just stole everything <laughs> from the greeks <laughs> but that's a topic for another day hey this is but, a different roman all right yeah it is <laughs> But, that Roman. But if you do look at Greek mythology, the gods are neither good nor bad. They're complicated and flawed, just like regular humans are. They just happen to be immortal. So I think it would be interesting just to learn more about these gods and find out, you know, what what is it that they do well, but also what are their flaws? You know, what, you know, I, I don't think it's going to be as black and white as maybe mm. it seems in this first book. So I'm hoping that it is a little bit more, we, we get more information about both of them to see, to make a decision for ourselves and who we think is in the right here and you know ultimately how it'll impact the story definitely hopefully uh becky roro gives us some some uh some lines to those dots that she gives us and we can actually color in some stuff and figure yeah. it out <laughs> <laughs> she throws us some breadcrumbs and some puzzle pieces we need a bigger picture come yeah. on becky roro part two baby <laughs> all right becky roro <laughs> So to, to stay in line with uh, talking about the war, we do see an, a negative impact on the mothers during wartime throughout history. Uh, in real life, we've seen this and it is addressed in the novel. Uh, we see that through Iris's mother. So how do we see this sentiment addressed in the novel? And what are your thoughts on the relationship between Iris and her mom, uh, as well as her mother as an individual. So we definitely see Iris's mother being impacted by the war. It's described in the book that after Forrest goes off to fight in Enva's war, that her mother kind of sinks into this alcoholism. She she suffers with alcoholism. And as a result of that, she is not able to care for herself. She's not able to care for Iris. And we see this kind of role reversal between Iris and her mother, where Iris is now in a position where she has to be the caretaker and make sure that the bills get paid and food is on the table and she's essentially taking care of her mother and that should never have to be the case i mean she's very young at this point she's i believe like just basically turned 18 she's she's just young and she shouldn't have to be in that kind of position however we do know from you know real life experiences what we've seen and how war can impact people so i i like that we see this in the novel it does seem realistic i like the the mirroring between this fictional world with the the real life world um um, I do have a theory about Iris's mom. So we don't really know what she was like prior to this book. So I know we find out that she suffered with alcoholism following Forrest's enlistment in the war. However, prior to him leaving, he is telling Iris, promise me that you'll take care of our mother, which suggests that she was maybe a type of fragile person prior to him leaving in the first place. And I think that she has some type of connection to the magical world. So... There's a few breadcrumbs that are thrown in here, and maybe I'm just reading too much into it all, but I think that 
I think there's enough to say maybe there's something here. So Mm -hmm. first we have the alcoholism itself. Typically people will turn to drugs and alcohol to cope with things. In this case, maybe because she is experiencing maybe some type of magical element in her life and she doesn't know how to cope with it. So she turns to alcohol to maybe stop whatever's happening or just to be able to deal with it. There is a mention that Iris uh, Iris puts this into her mother's obituary that autumn was her favorite season because she felt like she could feel the magic in the air or see the magic in the air. Um, then there's also a conversation between between Iris and her mother where they're discussing Forrest and Iris is concerned that he may have died because he hasn't written her any letters, he hasn't responded to her. And her mother says, no, I would know if Forrest was no longer in this realm. And I thought that that was interesting. This could just be that mother's intuition, oh, I would know if my child was dead or not. However, to me, it seemed like there was maybe something more to this, especially because she chose to say, I would know if he's no longer in this realm rather than I would know if he was dead. So I thought that that was an interesting turn of phrase. There's also a scene later on in the book after Iris's mother has passed away where Iris is having a dream and it appears to be a memory from when she was younger and she's having a conversation and she can't recall a specific detail and her mother is in the dream as well and she says to her mother, why can't I remember you know, what was said? And her mother tells her, oh, well, that's because this is a memory so you're not going to be able to remember it or something along those lines. But it, to me as a reader it felt like her mother speaking to her from beyond the grave it didn't seem like it was part of the dream so i think that there's some type of connection here and i think that we might see more of this in the next book as well and maybe this will turn into iris potentially having a connection to magic i do have a theory about forest as well so i guess i'll just get into that real quick but (laughs) (laughs) this one is maybe a little bit more of a stretch but so he did work prior to enlisting in the war he did work at a horologist shop which is kind of like a clock making shop but horology is the study of time and then later on uh, iris mentions that it appeared as if time had frozen and it makes me wonder if Forrest has some type of connection to time to maybe stop time or slow time down, possibly reverse time. I don't know. Those are the only two little snippets that I saw. But to me, they set off little flags in my head where I thought maybe there's a connection here. And if so, then it would suggest that Iris would potentially be the next in line to maybe inherit some type of magical ability or to be able to utilize some type of magic. We already know that she has the connection to the typewriter. So I don't know. I don't know. What do you think? I mean, I love these theories. I'm very excited about these. (laughs) I have a lot of feelings on this question because I agree with you. I think it's definitely possible that the magical typewriter could have trickled down from the grandmothers to their children and their grandchildren, right? So it would make sense if the mother did have some kind of spiritual abilities, some kind of touch with magic uh, that interferes with her life. And then obviously something we do know that Iris uh, comes into contact with the typewriter and then some magical elements, you know, are unfolding for her. And then it could be obviously possible that Forrest would have uh, some, maybe some sort of magical element as well, having trickle down. So I think that's all interesting. I hope those things happen because I think that just sounds really, really, really cool and would be nice to read about. Uh, As far as the negative impact on mothers during wartime, obviously in real life, horrendous. Their kids, this relates back to, you know, world wars in real time. Uh, Obviously, this was, I'm sure, traumatic for mothers and for all parents to have seen their 
child's name called and then, you know, have to go to war and then fear for their life and worry. So obviously the alcoholism in her case could have easily been a, a realistic coping mechanism. It saddens me though that she has to, you know, that Iris has to play caretaker for her mom. It's mentioned that there's candles everywhere. They can't afford to keep the lights on there uh, because the mother loses her job. So I wish that the mother would have said once one child is off to war, but I still have another child here I have to care for. But obviously, like I said, everyone's going to cope differently. It was sad to see that. And it was sad to see the mother losing her life. But I, like Alex said, and I, I, I have this theory as well, there's, there's no coincidences when you're writing something. And Rebecca Ross makes it a point for us to know that the mother dies on Alva's day. Yeah. Uh, so I think too, that it, it could definitely be very possible that the mother had to die as a mortal. Perhaps she sacrificed herself for her kids in some way that we just don't know about yet. And she had to be essentially sleep to awaken as a god or something. So perhaps we're going to see more of the mother. Maybe that's why she was coming through in Iris's dream. Perhaps she's in the under or not the underworld, but in the afterlife. Uh, you know, becoming Alva or something. So, or and maybe she'll, you know, be working with Alva. Who knows? Some things there that I think maybe are little breadcrumbs for the next book. So I, I completely agree. And I think that that's a little exciting. Yeah, um, I'm glad you brought up that she died on Alva's day because I forgot to mention that. That was one of my points as well, that she happened to die on Alva's day, who is a god. And I also forgot to mention that uh, a day or so before her mother is killed, Iris and Roman are walking on the street and she Iris is distracted reading something and she almost walks right in front of a tram car. Uh, Roman pulls her back and is like, like, oh, you almost got killed. What are you doing? And then the next day or a few days later, her mother is struck by a, a tram car and that's how she dies. So it also makes me wonder if there's some type of element of balance in this, if maybe her mother saw this or, or something. Um, Maybe she has premonitions. Who knows? Mm. So I don't know. Yeah. The mother's name is Aster. I think Aster is definitely going to come back in part two. I think there's going to mm. be something there with her. I think her death was no coincidence. So we'll see. Okay. Uh, yeah. The the whole relationship with Iris and her mom is just sad because Iris is obviously suffering as well mm -hmm. with the loss of her brother, no communication from her brother. Uh, this is what drives Iris to become a war correspondent and go to war because she wants to find her brother. Mm -hmm. I feel like if, you know, her mother could have been a little more uh, supporting in that, perhaps this wouldn't have happened for Iris and she wouldn't have had to quit school. But at the same time, then we wouldn't have got the story. So mm -hmm. yeah. it is what it is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> in, in what other ways? do we see real life war times mirrored in this godly war of the novel and do you think this was intentional and how do you think the war impacts the, the characters throughout the novel speaking of of the gods and the different gods there's, there's three of them that we haven't been confronted with yet in this novel Alva Luz and Mir we're talking about how things are mirroring and one of them's names name happens to be Mir M-I-R so I just think that's super interesting not sure if that's related but who knows <laughs> I think it was definitely intentional. I think uh, this is one of those novels that you, I really, when I was reading, just visualized everything so clearly and vividly and beautiful. And I think that goes to Rebecca Ross's writing. And I think she did a really great job with that. And obviously it's going to mirror lifetime wars because that's what we're going to be able to picture. So I think that her, you know, relating it to that, this godly war, we can't, there's no gods in this war that we know of that are going to come and fight, you know, on the front lines with us. So <laughs> I think that helps us put us in the scene and actually be able to see everything a little more clearly. So I do think that that was intentional. I think the war definitely impacts the characters. As we see when Forrest comes back on the scene, he's a quite a different person than he was in the prologue, quite a different brother 
to Iris uh, that we notice later on. He's kind of a little dark. So he's definitely seen some things and we'll get more into his character later. And it definitely impacts both Roman and Iris's relationship as well as them individually because they, they're now no longer just, you know, rivals in a in an office space. Now they're actually on the front lines of a war. And, you know, Iris is visualizing soldiers in a hospital coming in with injuries. She's uh, seeing them die right before her eyes. So obviously that's going to have an impact on her. And Roman as well, he's getting injured in the war. He's not even a soldier in the war. So that's impacting him. And I see it throughout the whole novel. Everybody is definitely impacted by this war. And that's definitely realistic and intentional probably of uh, Rebecca Rust as well, because war does impact everyone uh, in some way or form even if you're not on the front lines. Yeah, yeah, I I agree with you. And I I kind of feel like Rebecca Ross took what was reminiscent of a world war. I know we were kind of divided. You thought it was more World War One. I, <laughs> I thought it was more World War Two. Um, yeah, either I love way, that. <laughs> yeah, it's never specified in the novel when this time frame when when the novel is taking place. And it is a fantasy novel, so it's you know we can assume it's that neither. It's neither not, more. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I did get very like 19, late 1930s, early 1940s feels about it, which is why I thought that. But to me, as I was reading, it made me think of she was writing about World War II or just in general a world war. But instead of having these two opposing worlds forces, it was the gods instead, kind of like how the Watchmen comics and and the movie back in the day had reimagined the war but with superheroes in the in this case it was just it was the gods instead so i really liked that i definitely think that the relationship between what was happening in the novel to real life war times was intentional and i think we see that in this idea of the draft with enver <laughs> i always want to say enver i don't know why <laughs> but with enva uh recruiting um soldiers through her music and then we also see the real life impact where we're seeing Iris and her mother really struggling for food, struggling for money. They're struggling with keeping the lights on, like you said, which is very reminiscent of just countries in general during wartime where resources are very, they're they're sparse. And I think that the way that the the war impacts the novels throughout the novel, it impacts the characters throughout the novel. (laughs) Did I say the novels? I don't know. Yes. Okay. I knew what you meant. (laughs) I always do this. Anyway, I think that it's very realistic. I think these characters in the novel are impacted the way that somebody in real life would be impacted. So even where we see Forrest maybe having some type of character change, I think that makes sense for somebody who's been through war, who's seen death and has been on the front lines. That's extremely realistic. A lot of times in real life, we see soldiers coming home from war and they are changed and, you know, they've seen some stuff. They've They've been through some stuff and it's really hard to get back to real life after that. We also see how it affects the relationships. We see this a lot between Iris and her mother. We also see it later on between another character that we're going to get into soon, but Marisol and her wife, Keegan, and the, the challenges there. And then we also see Roman, who, if this war hadn't been going on, probably would have continued on a path that his parents wanted him to be on. And instead, you know, there are things from this war that impact Iris. And because it impacts Iris, it ultimately ends up impacting Roman. So it was really interesting to see how the different characters were all impacted in different ways. And I think that all of it was extremely intentional by Rebecca Ross. And I believe that it it really did mirror a lot of real life wartime uh imagery and i I agree with you about rebecca roro's uh descriptions and just that this novel is extremely atmospheric so the whole time you really feel like you're in this world 
you feel like you're in this war. It just, it feels real. And it's, it's, it's really nice to see that in a novel. I really appreciated that in her writing. And, and I loved that. Yeah. Becky Rowe wanted a show show. <laughs> All right. So before Roman decides to pursue Iris and follow her to the front lines of the war as a correspondent, he is set up in an arranged marriage by his father. What are your thoughts on the arranged marriage and Roman's decision not to move forward with it? And then what is your opinion of Roman's family overall? Yeah, I mean, I don't like the idea of an arranged marriage, especially because there was no consent involved in this. So I know that sometimes people do consent to arranged marriages, which is fine if that's what you want. However, in this case, Roman did not consent to that. He, he came home from work one day and his father had these people over and he was like, okay, Roman, come here, come have dinner with us. Don't go in your room because you need to meet Eleanor and you guys are going to be married for the you know in improvement of the family. So I didn't like that. I I didn't think that it was fair and I appreciated Roman's decision not to move forward with it. However, I liked that he gave it a shot first. So before, you know, he was already pretty unhappy with the arrangement because again, he didn't have any say in the matter. However, he does try to engage with this girl. Her name is Eleanor and he tries to get to know her a little bit, have her get to know him. However, she does not seem interested at all. She is kind of, I guess, on the same page as their fathers where she's saying, listen, we need to do this for the families, but you you don't need to actually talk to me. You know, we can we can just do our separate things and still be married. It's more of a political thing. And he didn't really like that. I think it made him feel sad. And he he ultimately decides that he's not going to to move forward. And instead, he he leaves his life and goes to the front lines to follow Iris and become a war correspondent. And I love that um, in terms of my opinion of Roman's family. So first, I want to say I love his house. So he does have an enchanted magical house. I thought that that was awesome. And it, it it will give him whatever he needs, basically. So if he's hungry, it has food waiting for him. And we find out that little flowers will pop up just all throughout the house and teapots and things like that. So it's just really cute to see that. And I did really like his Nan and I liked his relationship with his Nan. And I, I thought that that was cute. It seemed realistic again for a, a connection between a grandson and a grandmother. In terms of the rest of his family, I do not like his father. His the, Roman's family feels very old school, money, traditional. Um, I think his father was involved with the, the trains and, and getting the train started. And Eleanor's family, we later find out, is actually making weapons for Dacker's, for Dacker's um, army. So Roman describes them kind of as bombs, but Eleanor says that they're not bombs. So we don't really know what these weapons are. However, Roman has a big issue with this. He does not support Dacker. He doesn't really want to marry into a family that not only supports Dacker, but is literally making weapons to support Dacker. So, uh, efforts. So I, I liked learning about this. I think it says a lot about the differences between Roman and his family. And I, I was really happy that he chose to kind of leave them behind and move forward with what he wanted for his life rather than kind of falling into just the path that his father set out for him. Yeah, I agree. You know, he obviously, it would have been a loveless marriage. He did give it a shot and go out to lunch with her. She was very cold. She sat in silence with him. They didn't even talk while they were eating. It was very awkward yeah. and uncomfortable for him. And then she essentially, you know, he was like, what are we doing? Why are we doing this? And where the normal person that wouldn't be consenting of an arranged marriage would say, oh my God, I agree. She's like, who cares? 
for the better of our family. And, you know, we could just have separate rooms and not pay attention to each other when we're married. And, you know, obviously that's not what Roman Kit wanted uh, yeah. because he's Roman caring Kit. You know, Aww. he's <laughs> uh, and of course he was having feelings for, for Iris. And so, you know, again, no disrespect to anyone's culture who were arranged marriages. You would consent to it maybe because that's, you know, your belief. But in this case, obviously, uh, I disagree with arranged marriages in this sense and maybe back in uh, back in the day, there were maybe rich families that would try to arrange their kids to try to keep in that power and wealth. And it, it gives me like Disney Prince vibes <laughs> where, yeah. you know, the king's <laughs> like, you must marry a royal, you know, <laughs> somebody else's uh, country's daughter. And he's like, no, I want to marry who I love. I don't <laughs> want your wife. Um, <laughs> you know, I don't want your life. But, <laughs> you know, in this case, obviously, where would the story have gone had he chose this path so i'm glad that he decided not to move forward with it i think it's romantic as hell that he basically says after trying to comply with his dad's wishes no this isn't for me and you know throws himself as a war correspondent on the front lines to be with iris i just think that that's sweet uh i i do love also the house that it's enchanted i think hopefully maybe we'll find out some more information in part two that could the house have become enchanted after the typewriter entered it who knows i have some questions there but we did say it reminded us of Encanto. we love that movie yeah uh, definitely we don't did. we don't talk about bruno but uh <laughs> you know we do love that movie but but i did like that 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 the house uh it has an enchanting element and we will discuss a little further later about um like maybe some kind of floral theme in this book uh and there are flowers popping up in his house so very very interesting yeah. Uh, my opinion of his family, I don't like them at all. Uh, you know, I feel like for some people living in an enchanted house, there's not much enchanting about them. Uh, you know, they're very cold, they seem. They don't care about what their son wants. They're only thinking about selfish things about what's good of their family and how they can obtain more wealth and power. Um, and I'm just not, you know, down with all that. So yeah. I don't like his dad. He seems very cold. I'm interested to see going forward in part two, you know, they don't really get into his dad's reaction of Roman leaving and, you know, joining the front lines and, and saying no and all these things. And we'd also got some an invitation into who Roman's dad is because he was basically either spying or having Iris watched, you know, because he knew that Iris and Roman were out to lunch together and he had thoughts on it. He even went to the office where she worked and made some comments. Why isn't she here or whatever? So I, I don't really like Roman's dad. I love Roman's grandmother and I feel like he's more like her rather than like his dad and mom. So yeah. uh, lots of unanswered things. I'm hoping to see get answered in the next part. So yeah. Definitely. All right. So when Iris and also eventually Roman go to the front lines to become war correspondents, they stay at a bed and breakfast with the owner Marisol and Addie, another correspondent. So we also later meet Marisol's wife, Keegan, who is currently at this point fighting in the war for Enva. What did you think of these side characters and their interactions with Iris and Roman? Okay, I really love these side characters. Usually you get some side characters, but you don't get any real emotions with them or anything. I really loved all of these uh, characters. I loved Addie. She seemed real cute. Uh, her and Iris definitely formed a friendship rather quickly. Uh, it was good to have someone else there with her. You know, another girl that um, maybe I think she was young, Addie as well, uh, sharing this experience with her. She was very supportive of Iris when Roman comes into the picture and they're all very welcoming people. I loved Marisol. I feel like, uh, you 
you know, she's super cute. She keeps a, a promise to her wife while she's away that she's going to make sure their garden is well maintained and she does keep that promise. Uh, I think that she's also sort of a mothering figure, even though she's not much older than Iris. I think she's 33 and Iris is 18. So she could technically be her mother in a Gilmore Girls stance. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I love that she is taking on the role of uh, protector to her uh, to Iris and Addie when just to get into there are some sirens in this in this town and I'll go over them in a second and when the alarm bells sound they mean different things and there's one where if the bells go off at night there's hounds that invade the town and they will kill anything on site so kind of like a I am legend vibe they you know lock themselves into a room Marisol's got the girls behind her and she has a, a I think it's a rifle but a, a gun pointed at the door for anybody who comes in and she's willing to you know be in the front to protect these girls so I really love that she also doesn't have to invite these war correspondents into her home but she does and she welcomes them very lovingly and she's also seems like a good person you know she volunteers her time to go to the hospital and be a nurse for these injured soldiers. Um, so I really did like that they had depth and dimension and that they had, you know, their own individual personalities. We see later on Addie, she saves a cat. We love that. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, we love the animal people. So I love that. I think their their interactions with Iris and Roman were super cute, as you had mentioned too. you know, Roman, when he wants to marry Iris, he asks um, permission basically from Addie and Marisol and Keegan. And I think that's adorable. So I loved uh, everything about it. I hope that they're okay. And we'll find out more about that in part two, because it kind of leaves off that they may have gotten away, but we don't know what happened to them. So I'm interested to see uh, their fate and where everything goes for them as well. Yeah. What do you think? Yeah, I agree. I loved these side characters. I do believe that they were well-defined and they had dimension and they were just they were just cute. I loved their interactions with Iris. They really felt like real people. And I really liked Addie. I loved her interactions with Iris prior to Roman showing up. I really enjoyed how Iris kind of had just this really close friend in Addie. And I, I really did enjoy Marisol and how she did take on this kind of motherly role to them, even though I did feel very old reading this chat, like the, the some of these scenes, because she is, she's like 33 or 34. And I was like, this bitch is my age. Like she's not, <laughs> she's acting like like their mom like that's the character she's playing and it was very depressing and i had to have like a little <laughs> bit of an existential crisis um <laughs> <laughs> but I did think it was really cute and sweet how Roman, once he arrives, he's, you know, welcomed with open arms and it does, he has to ask permission to marry Iris by going to Addie and Marisol first. So I thought this was all really cute. I loved the interactions. I thought it really brought out a lot of the personality traits of Iris and Roman and they just added another dimension to the story and it just made the whole story itself feel real because, uh, you know, life is never isolated to just one or two people. There's always other people in our lives so it was nice to see that and I, I just this was just such a sweet book you know and all the characters were very sweet and it was just it was just nice to read especially coming off of tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow which was a lot harder to digest in terms of the, the characters mm -hmm. um in terms of uh, I'm glad you brought up the the gardening because this is where I, I had a little bit of a differing opinion in her keeping her promise she did keep her promise up until, so I think the promise was while Keegan's off to war, Marisol will take care of the garden, which she does. However, Keegan doesn't actually come back from war. She comes back to the town because she has to alert everyone that it's being attacked and they are anticipating Dacker's forces coming within a few hours and she's helping to get everybody out. And at that point, 
she's no longer able to maintain the garden. So in my opinion, I view that as a broken promise. She wasn't able to fulfill that promise in the end because Keegan hasn't come back from war yet and she's not going to be able to maintain that garden. So mm. I do think it, it ties in a little bit to that broken promises theme. But again, I could just be reading too much into these things. <laughs> but no, I, that's interesting. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I, I wanted to mention that I forgot, but um, I started to. But there are three uh, siren alarms that go off in this town that's depicted in the novel. And the first I mentioned is when hounds are coming through, the siren will go off at night and they have to hide in a room. Uh, the second is it during the day, everyone literally has to just stop where they are, go to the ground, you just be still, lay on the floor. Uh, as long as uh, there's monsters flying above and as long as they don't see anybody if they do they will um drop bombs onto anything that moves so i thought that was interesting and then the third we do see play out in the novel as well where if an alarm goes off uh it specifies that you just have to run take what you have there are uh, packs that marisol makes she says just grab a pack and go and go to another town close by because that means that dacker's monsters and soldiers are invading the town. So I thought that was pretty interesting that they had that, um, you know, spelled yeah. out for us in the novel. And I really was able to picture it yeah. uh, as these things were coming into play. I, I just thought it was super, super interesting and, and visually exciting. Yeah. It, re it really adds to the world building. You know, all these yeah. tiny little details are what make up a good world building. So you can really picture it in your mind. You don't have a lot of questions because it's explained. And I love that. I, I really think that Rebecca Ross, even though this isn't a super compl complex fantasy world, it's still very well defined and you can really understand everything that's going on in, in terms of the magic and, and everything else. And I, I just, I always appreciate that in a book and I know you did too. So. Yes. And I like that you said too, in the pre-recording that we made, uh, <laughs> in the prior recording, Yeah, uh, you said that this is like fantasy light and I agree yes. with that. Yeah. And for some strange reason, we're going to mention this maybe in the Thursday episode, but mm -hmm. for some strange reason, uh, people were recommending this after reading Fourth Wing saying, oh, if you need to cure your book hangover, read this. I don't recommend if you just came off of Fourth Wing to read this because it definitely does not cure your book hangover. It is definitely not that type of fantasy that you were used to, that type of romance that you were used to with the friction. It's completely different. It does have the element of, you know, rivals turned lovers. So I get that part, but it's definitely fantasy light. And if you're not a fantasy reader, uh, this is something that you may want to dip into be f to make you want to read more fantasy or more uh, complex fantasy like uh, those novels like uh, Fourth Wing and such. So yeah, this book um, is definitely more of a romance with some fantasy elements thrown in kind of like a fantasy backdrop. It's I can see if you really liked Fourth Wing for the romance aspect, then maybe you would really like this after that. However, it does lack that tension that was prevalent in Fourth Wing. That was more and the spice. Yeah, well, def yeah, this has no spice. <laughs> this, this is so, YA. This is YA. <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, the the tension. So I mean, Fourth Wing is more of an enemies to lovers, which I always feel like has more of that tension than rivals to lovers. So maybe that's why. But this is definitely not the same. It's not on the same scale, in my opinion, in mm -hmm. any of those elements. So yeah, I mean, I'll zip lock that for now and talk about it more on <laughs> Thursday. But you know, yeah. Well, there are mentions of magical elements, despite it being fantasy light for us. 
scattered throughout the novel, which we appreciate, including Roman's Enchanted House, which we touched on. Uh, then there's also Lieutenant Lark, a soldier that Iris comes across, who speaks of a magical tree, which I hope that we get more insight on in the next novel, part two. So how do we think that uh, these magical elements will be used in the coming sequel? Yeah, I think we're going to see a lot more of the magic, and I, I think it's going to be explained a lot more in the sequel, or at least I, I hope it does. I would love to learn more about Roman's house. Was it enchanted prior to the typewriter coming here? Is it the typewriter that brought the magic to the house? Is that magic going to translate to Roman in any kind of way, as we were kind of speculating about Iris? I really want to learn more about that. Also, I loved this house, and I want to live there. And I agree with you. It gave me <laughs> Encanto vibes. It, it really felt like that. And then Lieutenant Lark's magical tree. So this was a giant sycamore tree at the center of his town where he, he lived. And he and all of the, the men there decided to enlist as a single troop in the war. They said, we have enough men to make up our own troop. And then they carved their names into this tree to for, for luck, basically. So this tree had been struck by lightning twice and still stood and was still healthy. So they believed that it held some type of magical element. I do believe because Lieutenant Lark is not only gravely injured, but his entire troop is is killed in the war that this is another case of broken promises mm. in some way between yeah, interesting. The, the trees magic and the soldiers but i really liked reading about the magical elements of the story and i'm hoping that we see more of it in the sequel i think we're going to learn more about the connections between all of these different magical elements that were kind of thrown into this book I think we're going to see a bigger connection between all of them in the sequel. And I'm just, I'm not really sure how that's going to unfold, but I'm, I'm here for it. I'm excited <laughs> and I, I'm looking forward to it. So, yeah. yeah, I feel like Roman and Iris's romance takes a front seat in part one. And I think that that's necessary, obviously, for uh, what's to come. But I'm thinking hopefully maybe in part two that their romance, it'll still be there, but it'll be maybe more in the back seat with the gods and the magical elements more in the driver's seat. At least that's what I'm hoping for. Yeah. Uh, and I think that it's, I think we're going to see something. I think that magical tree story wasn't just put in there on a whim by Rebecca Russ. Becky, yeah. Becky Rowe knows what she's doing. <laughs> and I think that that's going to come into play, hopefully in part two. It's interesting that, you know, Iris's brother's name is Forrest, which we will talk about the underlying theme there with with flowers and plants. Um, and, you know, Forrest is compiled of many trees. So I'm wondering if that will have a connection. Uh, I love Roman's Enchanted House. I'm hoping now that Iris is back in Oath, maybe she'll visit there. Maybe they'll we'll get more um, information as to how it became magical. Was it because of the typewriters? You know, there's a lot of things that are mentioned that I'm hoping to get more answers on. Uh, but I think that we will definitely see magical elements in the coming sequel. Obviously, we're going to find out more about about this God's war and we're going to be more depth with it. So I think that the magical elements are going to be a fore forerunner in part two. And uh, I think that it's going to be a lot of fun to read. So excited for that. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. So at the end of the novel, war has descended on the town where Iris and Roman were staying while they were working as war correspondents. As they are evacuating, Dacker's troops have begun attacking and Iris is separated from Roman, but she's reunited with her brother. Mm. So what did you think of Forrest's instructions that they could not go back for Roman? And in what ways do we see a change in Forrest since the beginning of the novel? Well, this is interesting. Did you ever see the movie or read the book Annihilation? I saw the movie. I did not read the book. Okay. I didn't read the book either, but I want to. But in that movie, if you've seen it or if you haven't, Natalie Portman's husband returns from a warlike setting and he is dark. He is different. He is not himself. And I see that 
with Forrest, uh, a correlation there because Forrest comes back, not himself. You know, he comes back, obviously changed from the war. He was missing for many months and we don't know why. We don't know where he was or what he's seen. And we're definitely going to get those answers in part two. But he's not himself. You know, a Forrest that left, loved his sister, cared for his family, didn't want anything bad to happen to his sister, which is why he asked her to make those promises. And now we see him pulling her arm, hurting her, you know, choking her out, essentially, uh, and making her run and keep running. Don't look behind you. He's screaming out to her, you know, so when Roman's trying to catch up with them, he doesn't care that Roman's running through and, you know, alone and that they're going to be separated. So I think we're going to see something there. Uh, perhaps maybe we don't know what happened to Forrest, but we do know that he left the war answering Enva's call, but is now working for Dacker. So either he's running from Dacker, he doesn't want to be on his side, or perhaps something's going on where Dacker maybe put a spell under him and is making him separate Iris and Roman. So we just don't know, but there's a lot of interesting things there that could go into some kind of theory that even though they're better together, Iris and Roman, perhaps they're being divided for some purpose because Forrest does come back. And in a, such a strange way, because he's basically like the creep watching them as they're marrying. He says, oh, I saw you guys get married in the garden. There was boot marks in the house. He stole two packs. He went in there. He was sneaking around. Like if this was a brother, wouldn't he want to be a part of her wedding if he saw his sister getting married? Wouldn't he want to be involved in some way in the ceremony? I just thought that it was very strange of him. A lot of his things are questionable. The way he's acting, his actions are unusual. You know, when they do get back to uh, their hometown, he asks about the mother and she tells, you know, Iris lets him know that she passed and he seems to just kind of brush over it, even though she mentions like he seems upset, uh, but they don't really get into detail. So perhaps he's just not himself anymore. And obviously we're seeing that, but we don't know why. So I can't wait to find out why. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree and disagree with you on this. And I know we we did have this discussion yeah. yesterday. Cousin conflict. Yeah, cousin conflict. So I think it's realistic for Forrest to have been changed by the war. So we do find out um, from Forrest and, you know, whether you want to believe him or not, he initially was fighting for Enva. He was fatally wounded in that war effort and Dacker comes across him and heals him in exchange for Forrest then fighting on his side. So in exchange for his life, he now has to fight for Dacker. Forrest then says that he chose to defect from Dacker's war efforts and is essentially on the run and as you know as he was fleeing Dacker's war which we know is nearby to this this town because it's it's descending the war is descending on this town now he sees Iris he sees her getting married in in the in the garden with with Roman and I mean I can understand why he wouldn't just crash into this wedding for multiple reasons. Number one, Forrest has seen some shit. You know, he was on the brink of death. He was fighting in the war on one side. He was fighting on the war on the other side. He's been surrounded by monsters and fighting on Dacker's side is going to change you as well. You know, just from a human perspective, because now you're killing people that you were once fighting alongside of. And he has no choice in the matter because his life belongs to Dacker. So I can understand how that would be extremely traumatizing and he might be suffering from some type of PTSD maybe a crisis of, of identity and just humanity and to kind of be fleeing from that. And then all of a sudden you're in this beautiful little garden, you're seeing your young sister looking so happy marrying this man. It, I think it would be a surreal experience and he might not want to be a part of that because he doesn't feel worthy or it's just, it's just a weird thing to be coming from, you know, fleeing the war, literally 
fleeing for your life because if you're captured you're going to be killed and then just come across that i can understand why he wouldn't be all happy like oh my god iris i'm so happy to see you i'm happy to give you away to this man i don't know i i think it makes sense logically um in terms of him trying to get her out again i think this makes sense he is trying to protect her in my opinion i think he he sees her so at this point war has come and he's grabbing her arm and saying come on we gotta go we gotta run we gotta get out of here it's serious he knows if he gets captured he's going to be killed but he wants to make sure that iris gets out she would also be killed so he has no connection to roman he has no reason to want to stay for him and even though iris is saying you know please he's my husband He's also thinking in his head, Roman is injured. He can barely even walk on his own. If we try to bring him along with us, he's going to slow us down. We may not make it out of here. And my goal is that me and my sister get out of here alive. And because he has no emotional connection or any other kind of connection to Roman, he has no reason to want to save him. He's just worried about saving his sister. The point where, to me, it takes a different turn is where he does choke her until she passes out and then flees with her because she is struggling too much. She's resisting too much and it's slowing them down. So he does. He chokes her out. And then the next thing we know, they're back in Oath in their their apartment where they had previously been living. So I don't think that a lot of that is realistic outside of the choking. Um, but again, I can see how somebody desperate and somebody who's been through a really traumatic experience would see that as a possible solution. Um, I don't think it's the right thing to do by by any means, but I, I can understand where Forrest is coming from in this. And, you know, we also don't really know what Forrest was like before this. So we're making assumptions that he was a loving and caring brother and, and a person and he was protective, but we don't really know that. So it's possible that he always had a little bit of a darkness in him or that he was always maybe a little angry but if we're gonna say that he was protective he is being protective here i do think if he was trying to capture iris for some reason he would have i think we would have at the ends of the novel seen him taking her to dacker and then that would have been the shock of the novel like oh shit forrest just betrayed her and brought her to dacker what a douche you know but that's not what happened Instead, you know, they ran away and they're hiding out and he's telling her that there's things that she doesn't know, she doesn't understand, it's too dangerous to talk about. So maybe he's under a spell. I, I think there is something to be said if he is kind of under a spell or maybe is being turned into a monster. I know you had that theory, something along mm -hmm. those lines, you know, for that to be a metaphor of what war does to a soldier and how mm -hmm. they can come back changed. However, I am choosing to believe that Forrest is not evil, that he does want what's best for Iris. And I'm hoping that that's the case for the sequel. I'd like to see him helping her in the future. And maybe he knows something about, you know, these gods that we don't know yet. So I'm curious to see what kind of information he's been able to get during his time in the war. Yeah, I I don't share the same theory just because I feel like uh, there's a reason he comes back at the end. And I think that there's a reason he separates and goes as far as to go all the way back to Oath so that he separates Roman and Iris so much distance between them. But I don't know what exactly it is yet, but I do have this theory. I'm glad you mentioned it, uh, that perhaps, you know, Dacker is essentially turning all these fallen soldiers. We we hear throughout the novel how there's no communication with these soldiers. We see that with Forrest and with Iris as well. Perhaps he is, you know, turning these fallen soldiers into 
his monsters. You know, he's got to pull his monsters out of something. And, you know, I'm a Lord of the Rings girl. And there's there's all these orcs and stuff that were pulled out of mortals, you know, that turned into monsters. So it's possible that there could be some kind of uh, correlation there. And that if that's the case, Forrest did disappear. That would be a sign that perhaps maybe uh, he has become essentially one of his his monsters and is doing this with Iris to separate them. Um, I don't know if it's 100 percent, but I we do see a change in Forrest. It's not mentioned that he was abusive before. I think maybe if he did have a dark past, that would have been brought up. Uh, but it, we know now, obviously, that he certainly does. He, he chokes her out, like we said, and then she sleeps because she's resisting trying to go save her husband. Uh, and he doesn't, you know, when she wakes up, he's like, all right, let's go look when he knows maybe that obviously Roman will no longer be there because Dacker would have collected him as he did with him. Uh, and he does basically make a bargain with uh, Dacker to work for him by Dacker saving his life. So we don't really know how that comes into play yet, if he really is under some sort of spell or if he really isn't himself no longer because... You know, maybe he was brought back in to play a different role. And then lastly, him going into disrupt their wedding. I feel like if it was such a dire thing and he knew that the war was coming to this town and he knew that, you know, Dacker soldiers were upon this place, he would have interrupted and been like, hey, we got to go. It's cute that you guys want to get married, but you're going to have to do it later because right now there's things coming to this town and we got to get the hell out of here. And I also feel like if he really, you know, cared for his sister, that he would have made sure that Roman could come with them. I know Roman was injured, but it's in- interesting that... Forrest doesn't show himself until Roman is just injured and can't keep up with them. So I don't know. I have my I have my theories. I don't know. I I still disagree. (laughs) I I don't I don't think he was even intending to stop and reunite with Iris. I don't know if he knew that Dacker was coming to attack that town. I think he was just fleeing. He happened to see them and then was going to continue on his way. And then he then Ward does come to the town and then I think he goes looking for Iris to go and save her. That's my well, opinion. I also think, I understand where you're where you're coming from, where if he cared about Iris, he would save Roman. But in his head, if he's thinking, if we save Roman, all three of us are going to die. And if I have to choose between saving Iris and saving, you know, saving Roman, I'm choosing my sister and we're going to get out of here. She'll survive. She'll be upset, but she'll survive. And that's kind of like a PTSD type of mentality as well. You know, it's all about survival. So I just, I, I, I see what you're saying and I just hope that that's not the case. Mm. I'm just choosing to believe and be optimistic that this is just Forrest's reaction to some experiencing some really terrible things. And it's not because he is evil or trying to do evil. Yeah. I mean, if he's under a spell, he wouldn't want to try to do evil, but he would unknowingly. But we'll see. I mean, I'm interested to see how it plays out. Uh, And I hope, I hope you're right. I hope he's not, you know, under a spell and he's not bad or whatever the case is. But it brings me to the next question because his name being Forest, which we know is a compilation of trees, multiple trees, maybe multiple different roles he's playing. Who knows if his name, if Becky Roro has a little, a little interesting breadcrumb for us there. But there does seem to appear a floral, to be a floral theme throughout this whole novel. So for example, Iris's family, uh, they all have floral plant-like names. The mom is Aster. That's a, that's a flower. Iris is a flower. Forest obviously has to do with trees. Daisy, the grandmother, also name of the flower of a flower. And it's interesting because all of the 
the females in this family are flower themed, whereas forest, he's a he's a forest. <laughs> it's it's a little different. And then flowers do grow in odd places in Roman's enchanted house. Love that. So there's actually, you know, a connection between Iris and Roman with the flower theme as well. Iris and Addie work in the garden at the bed and breakfast. Iris and Roman are married in that garden. And Marisol made a promise to her wife, Keegan, that she would tend that garden while Keegan was away at war. Uh, so what do you think about the flowers in this novel and what they may symbolize. Yeah, so flowers typically symbolize re rebirth or new beginnings. And I think that that is the case in this novel as well, that they tend to represent a new start. I think that we may see a connection between this floral theme and magic. So we have Aster, who I've already given my theory on about her connection to the magical world. I think we are going to see that with Iris as well. However, we also know that she has the connection to the typewriter, which belonged to her grandmother, Daisy. And I think that there's a, a connection there. I think Roman's connection comes in through his grandmother and the typewriter, as well as the enchanted house, and then the flowers blooming in that house in odd places brings that connection back to to Iris. And for Forrest, I'm thinking maybe it's going to be some type of magical element, but a little bit different because it's not a flower. It's more tree related. Maybe this will be a symbol of resilience because trees are typically, you know, they they grow for years and years. They're, they're, they can be very old. They will uproot things that are in their way. So I think that maybe we'll see a connection there between Forrest and his name and the sycamore tree that Lieutenant Lark was speaking about. But I think overall, this floral theme is definitely intentional. And hopefully we'll see how that will play out in the sequel. However, I think my theory is that it's a connection to magic and this idea of rebirth and possibly magical rebirth, you know, whatever that might mean. I know you had the theory about Aster becoming Alva, so maybe it's connected to that. Yeah, I think it's interesting because uh, it definitely, you're right, it definitely has to do with some kind of element of magic. Obviously, the typewriter is definitely trickled down somewhere. But I think it's interesting that Aster, Iris, and Daisy are all flowers, and flowers uh, need sunlight, they need light to grow. Whereas a forest is... <laughs> Typically, you know, when you think of a forest, if you're in the middle of a forest, there's all these trees that are providing you shade and darkness. So I just think there's an interesting contrast there that that could mean something, whereas flowers obviously do, like you said, symbolize new beginnings and growth. So I, I just think that that's interesting. I, I'm interested to see where that plays out uh, in the next uh, part of the series. And it, it can also symbolize new awakenings, you know, with the gods re re awakening springing back into you know the world so i have a feeling that uh we're gonna get some kind of answer as to all these floral themes and then it's not just gonna stop with part one we're gonna see it go into the next part as well yeah all right so in the epilogue we see dacker walking through the aftermath of the attack on the town and he comes upon roman whose soul he describes as quote made of ice, a cold, deep spirit like the Northern Sea. He decides to take Roman rather than killing him. He decides to take him into the underworld to serve as a correspondent for him. What do you think this suggests about Roman? And how do you think this will impact the story moving forward? As a reader, this was very impactful for me to read. I was like, what? 
what just happened? You know, I was like, I can't wait for part two. Uh, you know, this was super exciting to read because I didn't see this coming. So it's so interesting that he's described by Dacker as made of ice because we see Roman as warm throughout the, the novel, you know, and obviously this goes back to the theme too of uh, Iris and Roman being better together. Maybe they're warm and good together, but corruptible apart, you know, uh, now they're both doing something separately and maybe some uh, both of them are in touch with some kind of darkness. Maybe uh, Forrest isn't dark, but maybe, but he has seen things and he has been on the side of the dark. So they're both seeing some things where Roman might be seeing it firsthand and Iris is just going to get some story about it and get some inclination as to where Roman ends up. Uh, but it was very interesting to read. It's interesting in the fact that made of ice, a cold, deep spirit like the Northern Sea, we got that from his dad. His dad was very cold, but Roman was the complete opposite. So now I feel like, is he going to turn bad? <laughs> uh I don't know. Is he going to become, is is Roman going to change in the next novel? And I think that we might see that, especially with the title being Ruthless Vows. Is he going to become ruthless? So many questions, but I think, I don't know exactly how it's going to impact, but I think it 100% will impact the story moving forward. Uh, so interesting to see what's going to come out of that. Yeah, yeah. So I have a couple of thoughts about this. So I, I think it could be either one of two things for Roman's soul appearing to be ice cold, made of ice. Either this is him shrouded in grief because he's just been separated from from Iris and you know that's you know affecting his his aura, whatever it is. Um, but I, I actually think that he's always had this propensity for coldness. And I disagree with you about him always appearing warm. I think he develops a warmth with Iris. However, in the beginning of the novel, you know, she says, even, even when they're rivals at this point, she says, hey, you know, it's lunchtime. Do you want to go get a sandwich? And he's like, oh, no, I can't. I don't have time for that. I need to work. And I think he he was very isolated. He doesn't seem to really have a lot of connections, whereas Iris seems very warm. She seems mm -hmm. very open and, you know, wanting to make connections and he seems very closed off. And I think in that sense, they are two opposites where maybe she's that warmth, she's that fire and he's this icy person mm. with the, the possibility of turning dark given a, if he were on a different path. And I agree that them coming together maybe balances each other out kind of similar to Dacker and Enva, how they're kind of these two opposites, but they seem to clash maybe Iris and Roman together can restore balance to the world. I think maybe we'll see kind of that theme in the second novel, but that that's how I took this was that he does like, he's, he is a cold person and his soul is cold. And if he were to remain isolated and continue on the path that he was initially upon, had these typewriters not intervened, then he would have had that that propensity, propensity for evil or just general coldness, but because his of his connection with Iris and this idea that they're better together, I think that they balance each other out. So that's what I think is going on here. And really curious to see what happens in the second novel. I don't know where, where they're going to go from here, because now that they are separated and he is in the underworld, what's going to happen. Right. I like that, that correlation. And you said isolated and made of ice. So yes. he's ice. <laughs> Solated. Yes. Uh, <laughs> I'll just see myself out. But yes. Uh, no, I agree with with everything you just said. I I think that makes a lot of sense. And obviously, he wasn't always warm. Uh, but there, but you know, he does uh, fling himself into war to connect again with Iris 
to be with Iris. So he definitely becomes more, well, I think more she, warm I think from she, Iris. She, yeah. Like together yeah, from they her. balance each other out. Yes. And yes. Yeah. She brings like, that I, out of him. I wonder if, you know, had he not had this enchanted experience through the letters and exchanging and everything with Iris, if he would have chosen to just follow along with the path his father was planning for him. I think uh, he if, would have. Yeah, yeah. I think had, had Iris not intervened into his, you know, heart, whether it be have been a cold heart, we don't know. Um, but it definitely changed him for yeah. sure. And so I'm hoping that maybe in the next novel, if he does become a heart of stone, so to speak, you know, no uh, relation to Tamlin there. But if he does become a heart of stone, that hopefully, um, like you said, fire and ice, that Iris can, you know, melt the ice and, and bring him back. So we'll see. Yeah. Yay. Excited about this. I, yeah. I can't wait for part two. I know. Me too. Come on, December. <laughs> yes. Oh, and I wanted to mention too that um, we did mention that this uh, the ending seems kind of rushed, but I had also found uh, an interview with Rebecca Ross where she mentioned that there's actually a bonus chapter. And I was telling you this, that there's a yeah. bonus chapter in the Fairy Loot Special Limited Edition. It's no longer available. If you got a copy, that's awesome. Let us know what that <laughs> bonus chapter says. So this way, uh, you know, we can uh, relay that information to you, the rest of you guys. Uh, hopefully in Thursday's episode, we can do a little research. Maybe we'll be able to find it and uh, share that information with you. But I'm wondering if that would have had any impact mm. on the ending of this. Mm. I don't know. It depends on what the bonus chapter has in it and where mm -hmm. in the novel it is. Yeah, I'm, I'd be mm. curious to read that. So definitely yeah. if, if anybody has a copy. Send it to us. Send us over. <laughs> or just tell us what it was about. <laughs> yeah, man. Come on, share the stuff. I'm going to look to see if I can find it, though, because there was actually, speaking of Akatar, <laughs> you, that there was a bonus chapter, not a bonus chapter, but like a preview for the next book in one special edition. And I was able to find a PDF copy of it on the interwebs. Nice. So I was able to read it. So maybe I could find the same thing for this one. Yeah, you're an interweb, by the way. Your mom's an interweb. So... All right. What were your thoughts on this title, Divine Rivals? I love this title. So this title is very pretty. It's it's poetic. And it's one of those titles where I would have been drawn to this book without knowing anything else about it. I, I would have picked this up and been like, oh, what is this? I want to know what this is about. And I like that it had different levels after reading the novel. So we have the Divine Rivals in these gods. We have da uh, Dacker and Enva who are literally divine, they're gods and they're rivals fighting one another. But then we also have this idea of Iris and Roman being divine as in magical and sublime and also being at odds with one another. So I liked the different uh, levels of the title. I thought it was pretty and poetic and I really liked it. Yeah, I agree. I loved this title. It definitely draws you in, makes you want to know what the book's about. And it does make a lot of sense when you know the story too, because it is about divinity. There are divine gods who are rivals. And there are uh, two rivals in this story who are uh, basically share a divine love with each other. They have divine love relationship through these magical typewriters that they're able to communicate with each other. And I think it's interesting too, because they're polar opposites, uh, the two different types of rivals, the two sets of rivals that we get in this, where Enver and Dacker are two divine gods that are better off apart, and Roman and Iris are better together, as it keeps saying in the novel and letting us know, and th their love is divine. So uh, it definitely makes sense to be titled this way, and I do love the title. Yeah, yeah, it's a good one. So what did you think of the cover art, and do you think that it fits with the content of the novel? 
Hell yeah. So <laughs> the, the cover art's beautiful. Uh, for those who haven't seen it, there are, um, I think you were mentioning yesterday, multiple different types of covers. But the cover that I read was on the Kindle and it has flowers going into a uh, like a vine on the title. Um, so I think that's very important. I think that this floral theme is even trickling onto the, the cover itself, which is telling. So we'll see. I think that definitely makes sense for the cover, just looking at it after you've read the story saying that, okay, something's growing, something is happening here. So something's blossoming. I know. I know I've said that word a hundred times, but it really seems to be on the cover blossoming here. So yeah. What do you think? Yeah, I liked the cover. Um, The copy that I read also had the flowers on it. However, I had previously seen three different versions of this cover and there was the one that we read with the flowers on the front which made sense and it ties into that floral theme but my personal favorite is it's a photo well not a photo but there's a woman she has that 1940s vibe about her with the hair and the outfit and same thing with the man but she's standing upright reading a, a, a letter a piece of paper and then hanging upside down opposite of her is a man reading the other side of the letter and i just love this cover i think it's so beautiful and i think it also represents the story very much i i prefer this over the floral cover um but for some reason it was changed i don't know why maybe it was a special edition but that's my personal favorite cover of the three the other one i didn't care for it was again a a woman and a man uh, it, it, it looked more hokey yeah yeah, I'm, I'm looking at the, the cover right now and uh, you pointed it out to me yesterday, but I do love this cover as well because they have the woman standing straight uh, looking at one side of the letter where the man is stand uh, is upside down looking at the other side. And I just think that's super interesting to maybe point to us in the direction that Iris is still on Earth. You know, she wasn't pulled into the underworld. He's hanging upside down, perhaps it gives me like Stranger Thing vibes, like maybe like he's in the upside down. Uh, <laughs> something's going down there. And it's just it's beautiful. And one thing that I really love about any cover that you see, it says on it, no God, no war, no one can come between them. And I think that that's really awesome. And I think that uh, we're going to see exactly that, you know, whole uh, quote come into uh, fruition in part two. So excited for that. Yeah. Yay. (laughs) So, all right. (laughs) We got through a second book conversation because our first (laughs) book conversation got deleted. So yeah. What do we think? (laughs) Uh, Would you scoop? Would you skip? And how many golden scoops would you give this one? Yeah. So, I mean, I would, I would scoop this. I would recommend this book. I definitely scoop it. It may not be for everyone. So, um, I I would recommend it if you're looking for a sweet romance with maybe some fantasy light thrown in there. If you're looking for a really epic fantasy, this is not it. If you're looking for a lot of tension in the romance, this is not it. This is a very sweet atmospheric book. It's, it's very heartwarming and cute, but it's not really it, it uh, for me personally it didn't give me all the feels that i was hoping it would give i did give it four golden scoops i did feel like i wanted more of the fantasy i wanted more of the gods i wanted more of the magic i was really hoping that the first half of the book would be focused on the romance and the second half of the book would be much more plot heavy and that wasn't really the case and i did feel that the end of the book was very rushed i also didn't feel a huge emotional connection to the characters while i liked them and i enjoyed them and i thought overall this book was well written and the characters were well written i just i just liked it i didn't love it um it was just it was very cute and I don't know if I would reread it. I I probably will before the sequel comes out as a refresher, but I don't think this is the type of book I'm coming back to over and over again. 
So something I love is that this is a first time situation where me and Alex <laughs> have the same rating. Woohoo! Uh, so I too would scoop this. I would definitely recommend this to anyone. Uh, I would give this a four uh, golden scoop. <laughs> but you know, I can't give it a five. I Although I did really enjoy it and I did really like it. Um, like Alex said, I didn't love it to the to the fact that it would be a five, you know, uh, it did feel very rushed towards the end. Like Rebecca Russ uh, was just kind of tying up ends, like I said earlier, in order to make this into a duology, you know, a second book. So she just felt like she had to, you know, maybe rush it along, perhaps had their romance sector, you know, ended a little sooner. And we had more chapters of them building up being the two of them rather than, you know, being uh, this letter exchanger Carver and Iris not knowing it was Roman. It just felt a little rushed at the point where she does find out and then all of a sudden, boom, she's okay with it. They're getting married. You know, it just, I I would have liked to have seen more. Maybe that's where that extra chapter is. (laughs) That could have been interesting and important Um, and maybe would have impacted us. But I feel like we would have needed more um, going forward with that. Uh, I did think they were great characters. A lot of the characters, even the side characters had great um, dimension, like we said. I did care about them and uh, their fate. And, you know, I do love the rival uh, rival to lovers thing that that, that trope is always good. Uh, this does also it is, is a, it's it's a light fantasy, like Alex had mentioned coming off a of fourth wing, maybe maybe didn't help it. <laughs> We're reading it for me um, because this was recommended as as reading right after fourth wing. And I disagree with that. I don't think that this will cure your book hangover if um, you're reading this after fourth wing and looking for all that fantasy, you know, juicy goodness. You're not going to get it here. But for anyone who uh, doesn't really like fantasy, if that genre is not really for you, but you love romance and you love historical fiction, this is something that I think that you would really enjoy. Uh, shout out to my mother-in-law. What up, Kathy? Uh, this is something that she would would definitely love Kathy because um, Kathy, you love uh, historical fiction, and this gives you all of the war feels of of historical fiction, and also you know tying it in with romance. Um, so I think that this would be a good start for someone maybe wanting to dip their toes in fantasy who enjoys reading romance novels. Uh, I do think I would read this again, and I definitely will when it comes time closer. The second part coming out. So all right, so there you have it. It's Divine Rivals. And again, if you haven't read it, read read it, but you want to, (laughs) you can follow the link in our bio and then get ready for the sequel, December 26th. It's going to be uh, a divine sequel. No, what's (laughs) the better way? Uh, Getting the sequel is going to be divine. No. (laughs) Time, you're in time. (laughs) You know, it was at the end. (laughs) We had a divine conversation. Okay. <laughs> All right, I'm we done. We had a good conversation. <laughs> Just a reminder to stay after the episode for some bloopers and bonus content. Next Tuesday, September 26th, we'll be reading and reviewing The Housemaid by Frieda McFadden. Join us then for our thoughts on the popular thriller and join us again this Thursday, September 21st for another potty episode with a special guest. Woohoo! Don't forget to mark your calendar for our next Book of the Month episode, which will air on Wednesday, September 27th. We'll be reading and discussing Karen Slaughter's critically acclaimed thriller, Pretty Girls. If you haven't read the upcoming books, but you would like to, head on over to the link in our bio and get a copy for yourself so that you can participate in our discussions. You won't pay anything extra, but if you make a purchase using our link, we get a small commission. So thank you for supporting us. If you enjoy listening to our podcast, it would mean a lot to us if you would leave a positive review on Spotify, Apple, or the streaming service you use. We would also really appreciate it if you would spread the word by telling friends and family about the podcast. 
Thank you to all our listeners. We also want to remind everyone to be on the lookout for our live events on TikTok. We're planning to do some live events soon and we'll be posting upcoming dates on our socials. So keep an eye out for that. If you're just tuning in, this is what you can expect from our podcast. We're going to be releasing new episodes every Tuesday and Thursday. So be sure to check out our socials for updates and also some bonus content. You can find us on Instagram, TikTok, and other platforms. Click on the link in our bio for access to all of our socials, our website, and other links. We encourage you to reach out to us with thoughts, ideas, questions, and feedback. You can email us at bookswithcooks at gmail.com. You can also find our full book reviews on Goodreads. These links will also be available at the link in bio. If no one told you today, you're important and valued. You belong here. You're doing great. And we believe in you. Now let's turn the page and put a fork in it because we're done with this one. post you i'll post you post malone (laughs) did you need a minute no shut up it's snack time (laughs) shut up and get your snacks we're talking snacks we're gonna talk snack about snacks (sighs) oh man well welcome back everybody (laughs) yeah right Welcome back to the clown show. Um, So going back to Iris and Roman, Mm -hmm. they're considered rivals at work. They're both young, hardworking, exceptional writers that are vying for the same columnist, columnist, oh no, here we go, columnist (laughs) position. They're co-workers at the Oath Gazette newspaper, and it appears that there's a connection between Iris and Roman before they even see themselves. Okay, you did the same thing yesterday. What the hell? (laughs) this game. I'm glad you guys skipped the class today. We're having fun, aren't we? I want to play video games. We had a good conversation. <laughs> you, you're the ringleader. Oh, you boys look so lovely in your little outfit. Hey, what's up, Mr. Lefetti? Hey, watch me alley. Oh, I just thought I'd eat you up. I love the tattoo, Mr. Lefetti. Look at all your different colored hats. G.I. Joe!